Do you have more month at the end of your money? Get yourself a lower monthly payment, pay off all your credit card debt, and even skip your next two house payments at SaveWithConrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. It's no cost, no obligation, and we're licensed in more than 40 states. Get a quick quote right now. Find out how much money you can save for free at SaveWithConrad.com. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, how are you, man? I'm doing great, Conrad. Really doing great. Feels like spring here and getting to spend some extra time outside with the dogs and the family and just having a great time. Well, and we're having a great time. We're going to be talking about, I don't know, a, a rather interesting pay-per-view in history. Such a weird moment in time the year 2000 was for WCW. Of course, we're talking about spring stampede 2000. We just passed the 20 year anniversary of that show. But before we talk about nostalgia, I thought right at the top of the show, we should talk about some major changes that have happened in professional wrestling over the last week or so. Uh, a lot of guys that you and I know have uh, been released from WWE and you've, uh, been on the other side of that call a couple of times. What did you think when you saw? Uh, this massive list come out this week with all the, the layoffs and furloughs. Oh man, I felt bad for everybody involved. I felt bad for the fans. I felt certainly bad for the talent that was involved. I felt bad for, for WWE as a company, because I know that that had to be an extremely difficult decision. Um, not just because so many of the talent that were released had been, been with WWE for a long time. They were obviously valuable or they wouldn't have been there in the first place. But, you know, when you develop a, you know, a five, 10, 15 year relationship or, or, or so with, with talent. And then because of circumstances that have nothing to do with the talent themselves, um, or necessarily the business in general to have to make such a big cut across the boards not just with talent, but with producers. And I'm sure there's office people that, you know, our, our listeners wouldn't know, um, across the boards all had to take that, that hit. And, you know, it's, it's no different than I guess the restaurant industry or, you know, the retail side of, of the industry. Now our, our economy, um, people are getting laid off through, you know, not because of bad business practices, not because they're not performing right, not because of any other reason than the just bizarre, you know, state of emergency, I guess, that we're in across the country that's uh, forcing these changes. And, it, you know, I think it, it hits me a, a little differently, and, and maybe that's not even fair, I guess, to, to people in other industries. I'm sure it's not. But from my perspective – one of the things I think that resonates with me the most is that so many of these incredibly talented people um, have spent so long, 
five, 10, 15, 20 years developing their craft, learning the business, you know, fighting so hard and working so hard and sacrificing so much to get into the WWE, to make it to the big show, um, as, as they say in baseball, at least, um, that now that, you know, at least seemingly for the immediate future, everything that they've done for, you know, five, 10, 15 years is kind of like put on hold and it's not easy to pick up, you know, you've got a family, you've got responsibility, financial responsibilities. You, I mean, you know, you're in the mortgage industry. You, you know what it's like when people are faced with such a, uh, an extreme economic downturn that nobody could have planned. Nobody could have foreseen it. Um, and these people don't have the ability necessarily to pick up and take their skill sets down the road to, to another company that easily, whether, you know, I know AEW is there, but there's only so much that AEW could, you know, logistically absorb in terms of talent. Um, so it's just, it's unnerving. And I, 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 I've been in their shoes, the, the talent that's been let go. I know what it's like to sit at home and fear the unknown and, and wonder, you know, what you're going to do with your life, you know, and it, it's overwhelming at first, but you know, in a matter of days and certainly a week or two or three, you know, you start realizing that, you know, when the mental emotional fog is clearing that there's still opportunities out there, but man, that first, the first couple of weeks, the first month, first month and a half are, are really challenging. And like I say, I've been there more than once. So I, I know from, from, from which I speak in that regard. And it's, it's, it, I just feel bad for them. There's so many great talents. As far as the, uh, the, the in-ring guys, the in-ring performers who are still wrestling and, and we hope continue their wrestling career, who do you think has the biggest upside, uh, the biggest opportunity to sort of reinvent themselves and come out a bigger star on the other side? You know, it's hard to say, you know, w- without knowing, I mean, let's be honest about it. There's really only one other place to go, which is AEW. Um, I, I have no idea what the philosophy philosophy is or the strategy is inside of AC, AEW in terms of developing new talent, talent or acquiring new talent probably would be more appropriate here. Um, so I don't know what their needs are. I don't know what they're looking for. I don't know what their goals are. So it's really hard to say. But, you know, you look, look at a guy like Rusev, I think, who is, you know, of the group. You know, Eric Rowan certainly, you know, can fall into this category as well. Um Guys that have been used prominently in WWE the most recently doesn't necessarily mean that they're you know they're they're the best talent available, but let's face it their their equity is probably higher just based on the fact that they've been visible uh, on the biggest platform in the world the most recently. So you know I would by default I guess if I was betting if I was in Las Vegas. I would probably put most of my money on guys who we've seen a lot of in WWE in the last six months or a year. I'd be less inclined to bet money on, you know, certain people that we, I'm not going to name names, but certain people that we haven't seen a lot of who were let go by WWE. So I, I think those guys who are, you know, who've been on TV recently, who've been involved in angles and matches and storylines recently, um, I would say they're probably going to be the first to get get opportunities in terms of changing your character. Characters, most of them are going to have to change their characters. You know, when you leave WWE, you have to leave your character behind unless you got there with it, uh, which in most cases today that doesn't happen. Um, so I would say all of them will be 
if not looking forward to reinventing their characters, uh, will have to do so whether they want to or not uh, to avoid litigation in the future. So, look, I I think most of the talent that was let go have been around long enough to know that, you know, this kind of thing happens. It's the entertainment business. You know, it's not like you're working for the post office or the federal government, for God's sake. It's this is the entertainment business, and the entertainment business can be fickle. It, 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 it you're you're only as good as your last performance. You know, your 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 career is subject to the whims and fancies of an audience, whose appetite can change uh, rather quickly. So, you know, most of the guys I think are and ladies are are probably a little bit used to this, but it's still a shock. It's still a shock. Well. Good luck to everybody involved. You and I both have, uh, some friends on those lists and, uh, I hope things are back to normal sooner rather than later. You know, it does feel like we're about to get closer to some progress and maybe some things opening back up, but I don't know, man, if you were a betting man, would you bet on there being another live wrestling show with a packed house? I don't mean, uh, maybe a special 500 person show or something like that. I mean, an arena show. Filled to the brim with fans. Do you think that's happening in the year 2020? Oh man. I, you know, I don't know. One of the things that frustrates me the most about watching the news and I try not to watch it too much anymore. And for a news junkie like me or a current events junkie, I'm more of a current events junkie than I am a, a news junkie. I don't really have much confidence in the news that we consume or what's presented as news anymore. It's all opinion. 90, 90% of his opinion, uh, more than anything else. Um, either implied or obvious. So I don't really pay a, t- a lot of attention to the news, but I do read a lot. I do, I do seek out information because current events has always been something that's, fa- you know, interested me or fascinated me. But in, the, in, in this environment, you know, nobody knows. This right. is a, this is a virus that has never, uh, we've never had to deal with before. And, and every day, and I'm guessing probably every hour, with all the people that are researching this virus and trying to come up with vaccines and antidotes for it, uh, in, in the research that's being done all over the world on this, I would imagine that you know the the medical community, the scientific community, is learning more about this virus every hour, mm-hmm. and and as a result of that, you know, every hour or every day, um, we get new information, and and I, I don't know, I. Again, if I was a betting man, I wouldn't bet on it because I think it's going to take – not only is it going to take a period of time before the collective population of the United States and the world starts really believing that this virus and this pandemic is actually under control um, as opposed to hoping that it is going to be soon. Right now we're in a hope it's going to be soon kind of frame of mind, at least here in the United States. And we're starting to see some early indications that hospitalizations are going down, death rates are starting to level off or go down, and, and they're projected to, 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 to drop off even further. I don't you have to use the word drop off and death rates in the same sentence, but you know what I mean. So the indications, the early, the very early indications are – that we're starting to see things getting under control. But there's a big difference between getting things under control and getting to the point where not only government officials and in in industry, you know, the people that own these arenas and, and the insurance companies that insure them 
um, the entire industry as a whole gets comfortable with the idea of putting, you know, 10, 12, 15, 20, 60,000 people in an arena I uh, or a football stadium for that matter. I, 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 I don't see it happening this year. I don't. And I'm an optimistic person. I sometimes, you know, have to kick myself in the ass for being overly optimistic about situations that I shouldn't be. But even given my optimistic perception of things or perspective on things, I should say, I just don't see it happening. You know, the, the end of 2020 is what eight months away. Yeah. I think it's going to take a longer, long, uh, much longer than eight months before things get even close to normal. What would you do if you were, you know, if WCW still around and, and, and you've got to figure out how to navigate this, obviously, the touring piece of business is gone. House show is no more. We're still going to honor our television contracts as best we can. But I think a lot of fans, and this is evident in the ratings. I mean, people are stuck home consuming, you know, entertainment like never before right now. I mean, people are binge watching one program after another, but not the current wrestling. I mean, we've seen ratings continue to slip and it's not because there's better competition on TV. There's very little new content being produced people just are having a hard time in my opinion uh getting into professional wrestling presented without a crowd because it is such a i mean cm punk even went on record as saying wrestling is impossible to watch without a crowd you know the it's more evident to him now than ever that it is a medium that sort of lives off of the crowd and now that you know hey this might not be so temporary we may have another you know, six, eight months, maybe a year, who knows? Um, what would you, what would you do? What would be the Eric Bischoff solution to, to try to keep things fresh? I, you know, I, I, I don't know, Conrad, it's so hard for me to put myself in, in today's current situation. Uh, because when I was running WCW, we didn't have the same type of relationship, contractual relationship with, our, our television partners that obviously WWE does and presumably AEW does. I, obviously, I don't know what their contract says. Um, but, you know, we were owned by Turner Broadcasting and, and Turner Broadcasting owned TNT. So there was an entirely different kind of relationship. But when I think about, you know, especially watching this show, it kind of made me think about the parallels in some respects, you know, the show that we're about to cover, you know, spring stampede 2000 was kind of a reboot. WCW had been, you know, getting its ass kicked and we lost a lot of audience. The brand had suffered tremendously. So much of the audience had abandoned WCW at this point, moved over to, to WWE and the new attitude era that, that, that followed the NWO era and the nitro era. Um, that we were forced, entirely different circumstances, obviously, but we were forced to kind of get together and say, okay, we've lost so much of our audience. How do we boot this thing in a way to keep it exciting? And I think in retrospect, looking at this show and reviewing it for this podcast, I think one of the things that could have been done better was to stay off TV longer. You know, my, my initial goal was to take, you know, WCW off the air for at least three, four, five, six months to really um, cultivate and capitalize and exploit 
the absence makes the heart grow fonder factor, and also to let the audience kind of forget just how bad things had been. And and to relaunch with with a new energy, a new brand positioning, a new attitude, new stories, all that. And we didn't give ourselves enough time. I think, you know, if I was running something right now and was faced with the situation that, that we're in right now, I would advocate, I don't know if anybody would buy it or not, but I would advocate pulling the stuff off the air. And I know WWE can't do that. You know, they've got a massive, you know, television contract with with Fox, obviously, in USA. Again, I don't know what AEW's relationship is with TNT. But if it were possible, um, without any risk of losing said contract um, in the future, to just take it off the air. Because unfortunately, the situation that we're seeing now you know, WWE is continuing to put content out and we continue to see the audience deteriorate week after week after week. And I'll take you back to something that we discussed a couple episodes ago, maybe a month or two ago. Uh, a good friend of mine, Gary Considine, former executive producer of The Tonight Show with Jay Leno over at NBC. And he's also created, executive produced a ton of other stuff, Access Hollywood and things. You know, I could name a dozen of them that you would all recognize. Um but one thing that he said to me is once the audience leaves you, once they decide they're going to watch something else, for whatever reason, once they make that, that emotional decision to, to invest their time in something other than your show, it's really fucking hard to get them back. It's harder to get them back than it was to get them in the first place. And I think about that now when I when I drop in on on whether it's you know SmackDown because you know Bruce and, and my loyalties are are with Bruce and the team at SmackDown. So I'm if I do drop in on anything, it's going to be SmackDown. I do check out you know Raw a little bit of it as as I check out AEW. I drop in. I don't sit and watch the whole show. But as I'm watching them and then I see the ratings every week, I mean, this week I think, you know, NXT, you know, outperformed in, ter in terms of total viewers, AEW by, you know, a handful of viewers, almost neglig negligible. But both, you know, I think AEW was around 653,000 viewers. Let that sink in just a minute. Half a million viewers across the country, a population of 330 million people in the United States who are locked in their homes and AEW was able to, whatever the number was, 650,000 and NXT might've been 652,000. That's frightening. That means that the people that were watching, you know, AEW, when they were kind of living in that 700,000 to 900,000 viewer category, NXT was probably 10 or 15% below that on average and head to head, maybe 20% below whatever the numbers were. Um, a good chunk, 25, 30% of that audience has said, nah, I don't want to watch this stuff anymore. And they've made that emotional decision to seek their entertainment elsewhere. They, we got to get them back. How do you get them back? What are you going to do? Especially in the case of, of AEW, which really only launched, what was it, eight months ago? Yeah, Six that, months ago? But, However long ago it was? They're, they're still, they still have the new car smell, <laughs> right? And now they're going to be faced with, 
oh my gosh, we've got to rebuild this audience. How do you do that? When you're still new. NXT, same thing. They've been struggling. They've had a hard time competing with AEW. Very difficult time competing with AEW. We've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. You look at it, you look at NXT and the tactical and strategic advantages that NXT has over AEW is kind of mind-boggling. They've been around for what, eight or ten years? They've been being branded. Um, they've got the full cross-promotional prom- support of WWE on the USA Network and on Fox. There's the ability to stunt cast NXT when necessary with some of the top stars uh, from either Raw or SmackDown. Um, it's got a, NXT has a tremendous strategic and tactical advantage, but it doesn't matter. It's not working. Right. And they're and they're struggling. So it's it's just going to be interesting. I would advocate, though. I'm sorry, I'm going a long way around the block. I almost forgot the freaking question. If it were me, I would advocate pulling it. I would advocate not not producing shows until we can get back in front of a live audience. And I know that's extreme. I know in some respects that could be playing Russian roulette with with the company itself. But it's a question of risking. You know, are there it, it's it's a matter of risking that one bullet. You know, you got five, you're playing Russian roulette. You've, assuming you're playing with a revolver, you've got six rounds, you know, potentially, and there's only one round in the chamber. It gives you reasonably good odds of surviving it. Um, whereas if you don't pull it off the air and you don't hold on to the integrity of your product, if you don't convince your audience that they should find their entertainment elsewhere by virtue of the fact of putting things out there each and every week that they find boring and they're leaving you as a result, if you don't make that decision, and it's a long-term decision and it's a painful one, what I fear or what I would fear, what I would try to analyze in terms of risk and reward or risk analysis is what's the bigger risk? convincing my audience over the next six months that my product sucks because I'm putting on a product that wasn't ever designed to be produced in front of no audience. Right. Or would my odds be better if I pulled my programming and in WWE's case, they got a, just a treasure trove of, of classic materials that they could still utilize, um, to have content up. But would I be better off pulling the show until things normalize um, and coming back with a vengeance, with excitement, and in in a, in a live audience, or should I spend the six next six months convincing my my audience that my product kind of isn't really that much fun to watch, and they didn't make their own decision, they just don't really want to watch it anymore, you know? And, and one could argue, well, everybody knows, everybody's aware of the fact that when things get back to normal, the product itself will get back to normal. That's an argument, and I would listen to that argument. But in my gut, I feel like the audience—they're losing the, the audience. Wasn't that strong to begin with? Let's be really honest about things. If you look at Monday Night Raw, it's been slipping probably five, ten percent a year total viewers for the last how many years? SmackDown's not even a year old on Fox, but. The audience was around 2.4, 2.5 million people on average, which is not a massive number for a network television show in prime time. It just isn't. It, it's a good number. It's a healthy number, but it's not a great number. 
It's not 1997, 1998. You know, go back. There were 10, 12, well, not 12. There were probably 8 to 10 million people watching wrestling every week. You don't have that now. You've got a, you've got a solid base of an audience, but it's not a great number. And if you start losing that audience and they decide there's something else more interesting or entertaining to watch, you you may get a portion of them back. You may. You may not. And if you do get a portion of them back, what what percentage will that be? You know, you don't know. It's hard to say. So it's it's just such a tricky environment no matter how you look at it. But I would advocate pulling the plug and coming back with a vengeance once I could, as opposed to limping through the the shows that we're seeing now. Because, I, I mean, I have a hard time watching them. I feel for the talent because I know the talent has a hard time performing. It's just a tough situation. It is a tough situation. We want you to join the conversation, though. Follow us on Twitter, and uh, let's have a dialogue. What would you do if uh, you had the uh, the keys to one of these wrestling programs right now? Do you agree with Eric that maybe it's time to just go dark for a bit? Uh, let's, let's hear from you. It's at 83 weeks on Twitter. He is at E. Bischoff. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And our topic today, spring stampede 2000, as we mentioned a few moments ago, it went down on April 16th from the United center in Chicago, Illinois, formerly such a hot market for this company. Once upon a time, some of the all time great moments in wrestling history happened for WCW in Chicago, this event in particular has 8,377 tickets sold a pretty nice little gate, 272 grand, another 4,100 in comps. It does a 0.25 buy rate. Let's explain what that means, especially in this era. Uh, that means that we had 115,000 people buy the pay-per-view and I know what you're thinking. Well, that doesn't sound like very many, but the prior month uncensored only did 60,000 buys. And the month before that super brawl only did 70,000 buys. Uh, Starcade, uh, the last show from 1999 did 145,000 buys, but that was way down from the month before there at 200. And that was way down from Halloween Havoc 99 at 230. Believe it or not, this 115,000 buys is the last quote unquote, big pay-per-view buy for WCW bash at the beach. 2000 is going to do a hundred thousand, but nothing else even breaks a hundred. So while this doesn't sound overwhelming and is way down from the prior year. That's worth mentioning. I guess the, uh, the prior year spring stampede did 255,000 buys in 1999. Now, or hey, 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 Conrad, I don't mean to interrupt you, brother, but to, to kind of put things in context and I know WWE is, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't try to research this. I'm, the WWE would be probably almost impossible to get a buy rate on because right. of the WWE network. But do we have any, what, what was the, the most recent AEW pay-per-view and know. do we, and do we, and do we have a buy rate number or a number of buys on that? I don't know the number for the most recent one. I know that the first one broke a hundred thousand and that was sort of the barrier everyone was looking for. And I know they've hit that number a few times, but the most recent one escapes me, but your point being, uh, AEW now is, is probably hovering around where WCW was here in spring 2000, as far as the number of buys. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I haven't seen, you know, it used to be everybody would publish everybody else's pay-per-view buy rates and numbers and attendance figures and along with everything else that they publish, including things they probably shouldn't have uh, or shouldn't have gotten out of the company. But I, I haven't seen a buyer, certainly haven't seen a WWE buy rate since the network 
came about, and, and I haven't been following AEW's buy rate, so I was just curious. Well, Meltzer does discuss the buy rate. Obviously, the WWF is much different now because of the network, but uh, he will break down the number of buys, you know, for say an, an MLW or uh, even, you know, AAA, but certainly the AEW shows. But the 100,000 was sort of the mark that everybody was saying, hey, will they pass it? And, and even 20 years ago, WCW was having trouble getting there. And so while this show isn't the best pay-per-view WCW is going to present, this is the last one, again, with the exception of Bash of the Beach 2000, which did 100 on the nose. This is even bigger than that, 115,000. But it's so far up from just the prior month. And I do feel like a lot of that has to do with the storyline you guys provided. Of course... Uh, historically uncensored is not the, the best pay-per-view of the year. However, you go from 60,000 to 115, you nearly double it. I think a lot of WCW fans were trying to give you another shot. Uh, not you personally, but the company, another shot to say, Hey, you know what? Uh, I know things haven't been great, but I'm willing to take another stab at it. But after this pay-per-view, well, the next month, they only do 65,000. Does this feel like when you watch this back that this was, um, I don't know, a do over a new beginning. You're trying something. You're trying to hit the reset button on a television product. I mean, I mean, I think so. And I, I tried to look at this and be as objective as I could be. And I'm going to admit before we continue, I'm not, I am subjective. I have, you know, I was involved in this. I was involved not only in the, the, the creative strategy, um, I, I was involved on camera. I, I was fully supportive of this show or I was as supportive as I possibly be under the circumstances. And I'll talk more about that as we go on. But it, it, in, in trying to remain objective about this, I, I think the score, the, the show scored pretty highly to me. I mean, and again, context is king. We all know that given the situation we're in. The options that we had, creative options that we had available to us, um, what else could we have done? You know, we, we, we took advantage, and I'm going to spend a few minutes, and, and the, I'm going to get this out of the way right away so we don't have to keep talking about it throughout, you know, the next hour or two. But this show, when I watched it back, there were a lot of things I really liked about it. There were some things, obviously, I didn't, but... Of the things that I liked about it, again, having lived through the situation that we were faced with, we reacted and arguably overreacted to a lot of the internet chatter yep. and the criticism of not just me, but of Hulk Hogan and, and Ric Flair and the old guys, right? That was kind of like the, and it was really left over from, I think a lot of it was a hangover, um, that we all got from drinking way too much WWE scotch, meaning, you know, every week while we, while WCW was, was, you know, curb stomping Vince McMahon and the, and the WWF, you know, for a couple of years, um, their theme was, yeah, but they're old. We need young. We need new. We need fresh. And we've been hearing that for, I've been hearing, I've been in the, well, I'm not in the business any longer, but I had been in the business for over 30 years. And for 30 years, I heard that same conversation, right? No matter where I went, but you know, everybody keeps bringing back the older talent because the older talent 
actually moves the financial needle much more so than the younger talent. It just is what it is. Um, and always has been in, well, and I'm not saying you don't develop younger talent. I'm not, I'm believe me. I know my Twitter feed's going to fucking explode when this podcast hits tomorrow morning, but I firm believer in developing new, young, exciting talent, but there was this, you know, anti-branding theme from WWF, um, criticizing WW, WCW for being old, criticizing Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper, Ric Flair. You know, anybody over 40 years old or 35 years old at the time was considered an old man. Um, and we overreacted to that. We, we allowed that internet chatter to affect the creative on this show. And that's how we ended up with new blood versus old blood. You know what I mean? That, 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 that battle if you will, between older talent and younger talent was not only real inside of the roster, inside of the locker room, if you will, or backstage, but it was certainly a real and vibrant conversation. Vibrance is uh, not the right word, robust conversation within the internet and dirt sheet, you know, community. And we, we allowed that to affect us. In my opinion, now 20 some odd years later, we allowed we allowed that to affect us too much in our, in our creative approach to the show. And we'll point out a couple of examples as we go, but the basic premise, the basic premise or strategy, I think of this show was to strip out, strip all the belts, right? Every belt is up for grabs. I still like the idea given the circumstances we were in at the time, because that was one of the things that we could do to communicate to the audience that this is going to be a whole new show. This is going to be a whole new talent roster. This is going to be a whole, you know, a list of new champions, at least potentially. I think that was smart given the perception or the reality of WCW as a brand at the time. So I, I did like that aspect of it, but I do admit that I for sure, um, allowed that internet chatter to affect me more than it should have. Is that something you carried with you? You know, I, we know that you're not going to be with WCW too terribly much longer before you're back on hiatus again, and then try to put together some investors to buy it and blah, blah, blah. But when you find yourself working with TNA again later, and then most recently with WWE, did you sort of hang your hat on this lesson as well? I mean, did it sort of help you navigate some, you know, what's the internet saying and how, how much emphasis should we play on that? No, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it, it wasn't news to me. I mean, I succumb, I compromised here. And, and I think that's, you know, again, looking back at the entire situation again, I lived it. I, you know, I, I went through things that the audience will never know about. Maybe some of those things will, will reveal on this episode. But when I got done watching this episode um, yesterday, actually, the thing that I walked away with, just me personally, you know, 20 minutes after it was over, was that I compromised. And while some of those compromises ended up being pretty good under the circumstances, overall, this show was really about compromise. And I knew going in that we were reacting too much to the internet chatter. I knew going into this 
weeks before this show. I knew based on the creative direction that we were taking, that we were allowing the audience to dictate too much to us. Um, and we weren't taking control of our own product. And don't get me wrong. I'm a firm, listen to the, I was the guy who in WCW wouldn't, I wouldn't sit backstage in gorilla with a, with a set of can, uh, headsets on and watch a little, you know, eight by eight inch monitor. That's bullshit way of, in my opinion, a ridiculous way of trying to gauge or, or evaluate an audience's response to anything. Yeah. You can watch a match very closely and you can see missed spots and you can, you know, with a tremendous amount of detail, help direct what's going on in the ring. Um, when you're sitting there with a monitor in a gorilla position, but what you don't get, and in a sense, let me back up. In a sense, when you're sitting back in that gorilla position and you got your headsets on and you're surrounded by people who are doing much the same, you're that's a that's a different kind of bubble. You're not experiencing what's going on in the ring the same way the people in the arena are. And that's a big, you know, that's a it's not a criticism, it's just an observation. You know, if, you know, that's one of the things that I think, you know, WWE could do a better job of is really getting a better feel for what the audience really wants, as opposed to assuming, you know, what they want, laying it all out in great detail, putting on a set of cans, you know, sitting, sit back in a, in a little draped off room for two hours or three hours and lose yourself in a monitor. You're not really feeling the audience. Um, So I think in many respects, one of the things that I think that, that people could do better today is to really understand the audience, whether it's through research, whether it's through just dressing up in a disguise and sitting in the cheap seats up in the, in, in the balcony and watching the show with the rest of the fans, whatever you could do, get a better idea what the fans are really thinking. And I think we just overcompensated for that. Here. I, I'll speak for myself. I overcompensated um, for, for what I felt the audience wanted here. And we just went a little too far with it. Shit. Damn it. These are the sounds I used to make when I would cut my scrotum before I knew about manscaped.com. Thank you, Manscaped, for turning those loud shrieks into multiple peaks. That's what we all know a friend. Maybe you don't want to admit to it, but you too have had a little bit of a trimming accident before. No more nicks or cuts thanks to the Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0, though. This is their third generation trimmer featuring advanced skin safe technology to keep your bad boys nice and smooth. Those manscaping accidents are finally a thing of the past. They've spent 18 months engineering the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created. Of course, we're talking about the brand new and improved lawnmower 3.0. This battery is incredible. It'll go up to 90 minutes. It's even got an led light, which illuminates the grooming area. You've also got a rapid charging dock powered by USB. There's so many success stories for this. It has become a part of professional wrestling. See what all the hype is about. Everyone I know has a new lawnmower and you should too get the lawnmower 3.0 with 20% off and free shipping. When you use the promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. Seriously, you got to try this for yourself. Get 20% off and free shipping with the promo code 83 weeks at manscaped.com. 
That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Just use our promo code 83 weeks, your partner, your dick and your balls. will thank you. Uh, last year, I guess it was, we did a show on the April 10th nitro, which is the go home nitro before spring stampede. I encourage everybody to uh, check out the archives, uh, and, and check out that episode. Pretty interesting show. And it sets the tone for what we're going to see here. On that same show, we should remind you, we saw the debut of the ECW world champion, Mike awesome. When he attacked Kevin Nash, we also talked about a lot of the moving and shaking there, but let's touch on some of it here. Meltzer would report the legal controversies at first appeared settled on April 10th, when ECW and WCW came to an agreement where WCW paid ECW a reported six figure settlement regarding the contract of Mike Alfonso and agreed to certain stipulations regarding his portrayal on the nitro program that evening and that he would drop the ECW title on April 13th in Indianapolis. Uh, Alfonso had reportedly signed a three-year deal with ECW. Alfonso had denied that to people in WCW, and if ECW had no legal hold on him, there would be no breach and no reason to reach an out-of-court settlement and a contract buyout on ECW. Okay, let me, let, me, let, me, let me interrupt you right there. That's wrong, okay? And again, that's something that Dave Meltzer, because he's – and I don't mean this to sound derisive, um, not taking a shot at him. He's ignorant. He's not a lawyer. He certainly didn't work within the legal department at Turner Broadcasting. He certainly didn't have any insight into the corporate philosophy of litigation and when to settle and when not to settle. And the threshold, the financial threshold, where it's e- where it becomes easier and actually cheaper in the long run to settle than it does to fight. And that, by the way, I hated that. I wasn't a fan of it because that kind of thing, that kind of philosophy where, hey, we'd rather settle for six figures. In this case, it was probably a hundred grand, maybe a little more. I, I have no idea. I wasn't involved in it. But it's easier to settle and just move on than it is to fight things out. And Meltzer stating, well, they wouldn't have you know, entered into a six-figure agreement if there wasn't any you know, substance to it, is just another example of Dave Meltzer not knowing what the fuck he's talking about. Perfect example. Sorry for the interruption. Supposedly, one of the negotiations is we want the announcers on the show, Nitro, to say that Mike Awesome is the ECW world champion. He has a title defense that will air this Friday on TNN. And the other is that awesome would not do an interview on the show, which he did. Do you remember there being some sort of an agreement that we're going to acknowledge he's the ECW world champion? No, I I don't. Let me explain why. And this is another thing that I think we should, you know, knock out, knock out right away. Um, because otherwise it'll keep coming up throughout the show. Keep in mind when. I got sent home in 1999, which is just months before this, really, five or six months, whatever it was. Um, I was still under contract, and I had two and a half years left on that contract. Turner Broadcasting had, it's a legal term, paid or played me. They executed the pay or play provision in an existing contract. Once a company pulls that trigger, once they advise you, put you on notice that you've been paid or played, for a lack of a better way to say it, you can't – they pull the trigger, the bullet comes out of the barrel. In my case, that bullet was 
you know, you're going to get your, you're going to get your two and a half years of compensation. You're going to get all your stock options. You're going to get all your stuff. Um, you're just not going to come back to work. Once they pull the trigger, the bullet leaves the barrel. I am now paid or played. Um, they can't hire me back. They can't make me come back. They have to, they have to honor the contract as it was when I signed it with no changes whatsoever. Once they exercise that provision. Now, what happened here was they came, you know, we ended up talking about me coming back. I started the conversations with Brad Siegel. I had an agent at the time uh, with CAA by the name of David Tinzer. And David was a great agent. He's since retired. Um, I went to David. And I said, David, they're, they're you know, they, they want me to come back. What do we do? And I sat down. I, I sat down with David Tinzer and he said, okay, Eric, how do you want this to play out? What do you want out of this? Just think about yourself. Don't think about the company. What is your wish list? And that's exactly what I did. I said, okay, I want 100% of the money that they owe me under my current agreement, which is close to a million dollars. Um, I want to hold on to my stock, stock options. And I don't want to be involved in management in any way, shape, or form. Brad wanted me to come in. Brad Siegel wanted me to come in. He wanted me to come back to oversee all of the creative. I made it clear that I didn't want anything to do with Turner Corporate. Nothing. I'll oversee the creative. I'll be responsible for that. But I don't want the responsibility for anything else within WCW Turner Broadcasting Time Warner. I don't want any meetings. I don't want any conversations. I don't want to be included in any emails. I don't want any of that. All I want to do is be responsible for creative. And oh, by the way, I want a two-movie deal out of this. And I ended up getting what's called a put commitment, meaning Turner Broadcasting, TNT in particular, made a commitment to as a part of my new contract to guarantee me at, at minimum it was either two or three. I think it was two, two movies for the TNT network, which I could then take through CAA and David Tinzer, and I could leverage those into other production opportunities over and above my compensation for for from WCW under my new agreement. So in short, and the reason I'm saying this is, it's really easy without understanding the complexities and the in the details of my new contract during this period that we're in right now in 2000 was much different than my responsibilities and my contract under my previous agreement. So here I had no conversations with Diana Myers. I had no conversations with Turner Legal. I didn't want them. They were instructed not to call me. I didn't want to know about it. So whatever machinations were going on and details were going on with regard to this lawsuit didn't end up on my radar screen. So I really couldn't tell you what the details were. Well, what a fascinating story it was. I mean, the payoff for this thing, the compromise that's going to be reached is ultimately going to happen at an ECW show where you have a WWF contracted wrestler come back to the company ECW to defend the company against a now WCW contracted wrestler who is still the world champion. So a WCW guy loses the ECW title to a WWF guy. Pretty remarkable. I mean, that feels like something that would have never happened. Uh, just a year prior, and, and now it's the reality here in this era of uh, of Nitro. Keep in mind, and I think Bruce uh, Pritchard could speak to this far better than I, but keep in mind that ECW was funded by WWE. Right. 
I mean, you know, it's really funny. You go back and and you listen to some of the, you know, the promos, famous, you know, Heyman promos where, you know, he's rallying against the establishment and how awful WWF is and how awful WCW is. And they're the, they're the little engine that could. They're the renegades. They're the future. Uh, but Vince McMahon was paying Paul Heyman's bills. So it's it, it, while it may seem, you know, if, if you don't know what was going on behind the scenes, but WWF, Vince McMahon, was financially supporting ECW at the time. So with, with that in mind, eh, yeah, sure, it seems strange to the average person who doesn't know. But when you understand what was really going on behind the scenes, it's yeah, not surprising at all. Talk to me a little bit about the idea here behind using Mike awesome. Obviously I'm a big Mike awesome fan. We've talked about that a lot here on the show. I loved his presentation in ECW. It doesn't feel like it ever quite clicks with WCW or for that matter, the WWF. Uh, why don't you, th- who was pushing for Mike awesome? And why don't you think he was a better fit for WCW? Oh gosh. I'm not really sure who. And again, I know I've said this a million times and nobody really wants to believe it, but I, I wasn't watching ECW. So I really wasn't familiar with Mike awesome when we brought him in, brought him in, but Terry Taylor was Kevin Sullivan was, there were other people in WCW who were very close to the creative process or involved in the creative process who did have a much closer, um, uh, picture and view of what was going on. Uh, with ECW than I did. And they were advocating Mike Awesome. Now, it didn't hurt that Mike Awesome, I believe he was Hulk Hogan's nephew. Um, that didn't hurt either. It, it certainly helped and, and helped pave the way. But Mike Awesome, and it was really interesting, you know, I've talked about Mike Awesome in the past and people have interviewed me about Mike Awesome in the past. And I, I've always had this kind of vague perception, or not perception, but this vague memory, I guess, of working with Mike. And he was the easy guy for me to work with. He was very professional, very quiet, you know, kept to himself, did the best he could. He was, was a good, he was, he was a pro. Um, but in watching this episode, I was like, whoa, this guy was really pretty freaking amazing for a big guy. I mean, right. he was pulling moves out of his hat for a guy his size that were really, really surprising. And he did them very, very well. A lot of talent. But to, to answer your question, I, I don't know if it was Kevin Sullivan or Terry Taylor, whoever it was that brought him into w, that that suggested he come into ECW wasn't met with any resistance because a lot of people who knew of Mike other than me supported him and clearly because he was Hulk's nephew just made it that much easier. All right, we need to run a timeout right now and give everybody a peek behind the curtain. Uh, Eric is not using headphones today as we're doing the show. He's using his Raycon earbuds. And you already know Raycon earbuds start at like half the price of any other premium wireless earbud on the market. And you know that they sound just as amazing as the other top brands. Their newest model though, the everyday E25 earbuds, they're the best ones yet. Six hours of playtime, seamless Bluetooth pairing, more bass, and a more compact design that gives you a nice noise isolating fit. Raycon's wireless earbuds are so comfortable. They're perfect for conference calls or binging podcasts. And as I said, Eric is actually recording our shows using a pair of Raycon earbuds. And unlike some of your other wireless option, Raycon earbuds are both stylish and discreet. No dangling wires or stems to distract anyone during video calls. And you've heard me talk about how the company was founded by Ray J 
and all the celebrities like Snoop Dogg who are obsessed with Raycons, pick up a pair today and see what all the hype is about. And now it's time to get the latest and greatest from Raycon with 15% off when you go to buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks. That's buyacon.com slash 83 weeks for 15% off your Raycon wireless earbuds. That's buyraycon.com slash 83 weeks, B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com. And you get 15% off and man, everybody needs a great pair of these right now, whether you're working from home or maybe you're working on your fitness, whatever you're listening to and whoever you're listening to, they are going to sound better. And life's going to be a little easier with a brand new pair of wireless earbuds from Raycon. And by the way, 15% off right now at buyraycon.com forward slash 83 weeks. Everybody needs a pair of awesome wireless earbuds and why overpay? Get the same great sound at a fraction of the price. It's buyraycon.com forward slash 83 weeks. Talk to me a little bit about the creative of how we we know that we're, we're sort of trying to hit the reset button and we're, we're trying some new things. We've got Eric Bischoff working with Vince Russo, which has never really happened. And we're going to hit the reset button, strip all the champions, develop some new tournaments. So with this sort of new vision, I guess you guys need some sort of central theme, central storyline, central angle. And for years and years, WCW's bread was buttered with the NWO storyline. Is that sort of, how we decide on new blood versus the millionaires club, you know, with respect to what you had talked about, where it had always been, Oh, the youth and all oh, the age and talk to me about why we ultimately decide on, Hey, we've got to have something, even though we are starting over, we've got to have something to get us going. So let's sort of divide the locker room where maybe once upon a time, it was half WCW and half NWO. Well, maybe the issue now is you're old and have all the money and we need our shot, which had always been sort of the, the knock on a Hulk Hogan or a macho man or WCW and maybe a 94, 95, 96 timeframe. Why is this the, the piece of business that, that we're going to say, all right, here's our first storyline. Well, going back to, you know, what we were talking about at the beginning of this episode, that was the, that was the temperature. Um, within the the wrestling, the peripheral wrestling community, whether it be internet, dirt sheets, whatever, you know, that was, it was, the, you know, guys like Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan and, you know, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper, all these guys that are making millions of dollars. They're holding on to their spot and we're not making room for the new, young, fresh talent. So the audience kind of dictated in a way the old guys versus new guys. Right. Well, we're not going to call it the old guys. So, and we don't want to call it the new guys necessarily. So, how do we how do we kind of characterize the 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 distinction between that veteran group of talent who've been around forever, um, that presumably so much of the audience had gotten tired of seeing, and distinguish them to this young up up and coming, trying to break through the glass ceiling um, group of talent that that the presumably the audience wanted to see and new blood versus millionaires club 
because many of the guys were millionaires or at least had been for a minute at, at some point in their careers, um, kind of made more sense. The perception, at least within the audience, is guys like Piper and Flair and Hogan and Savage and, you know, so many of the other, you know, Hall and Nash and so many other people were all millionaires. Therefore, they didn't care about anybody else but themselves. Okay, let's figure out a way to exploit that. So you've got the millionaires over here that don't give a fuck about anybody else, presumably. And then you've got these young, hungry new guys here. Let's just come up with New Blood versus Millionaires Club. And that's really – we didn't really reflect or try to connect in any dots to NWO or anything like that. It was, okay, What what is our current reality? Clearly the audience is divided. You've got a portion of the audience that really likes the veterans and the older guys and the buy rates and the television ratings kind of – suggested that that was true but yet you've got this huge underlying current that exists in the peripheral media and 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 all over even and and you know because it existed in the peripheral media and the internet chat now it starts filtering into the heads of executives this is one of the you know biggest bitches i've always had with dirt sheets is because you know they they write about shit they first of all don't know much about or if anything really in in many respects not at all but in many respects, especially when they start talking about the inner workings of a business that they've never been involved in, um, or like Dave Meltzer talking about the you know the the legal philosophy of a corporation that you know he couldn't find the legal department to Turner Broadcasting if he got dropped off at the CNN Center. But that internet chatter, that 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 vibe, if you will, ends up slowly but surely, you know. In the headsets, on the laptops, in the lunchroom conversation of executives, so it's like okay, we either we either fight it or we embrace it. Let's embrace it and try to make money with it, and that's what this pay per view really represented, and that's what the New Blood versus a Millionaires Club that was the manifestation of what was really going on in the peripheral media at the time. I can get behind it. I get it. I understand it. Talk to me about what at the time when you, we've all, we've often heard that, you know, the booking philosophy for wrestling for a long time was you start at the end and sort of work backwards. So you figure out what you want the big finish to be the grand finale and how, what's the payoff brother, and then work backwards. So talk to me about when you first launch in this direction, what did you think the end of this looked like? Where is it all going? I think it's a good question. And I, I was thinking about that as I was watching this because, again, I hadn't watched it since I did it. So it's 20 years old this month. Um, and I was trying to recall, you know, what what were we thinking? You know, where did we want to go from here? What was next? And I think the idea, as best I can, you know, pick it apart and recall it 20 years later – I think the the idea was to to create two distinct groups, two two different factions, the Millionaires Club and the New Blood, but also create rivalries and competitive situations between individuals within those respective groups. So it, it was kind of a, a a launching pad, if you will, to establish a certain category of talent, being the Millionaires Club, establish the New Blood, and then create rivals within those two groups. And eventually have kind of a new approach to what we were presenting. We certainly wanted to. We wanted to try. I mean, we certainly did with Billy Kidman, for God's sake, uh, and Hulk Hogan. We really wanted to make an effort to get some of the younger talent over by rubbing them up against 
as you know, you know, giving them the rub, as they say in the business, um, with some more established talent. And I think Billy Kidman and Hulk Hogan was the perfect, you know, illustration of that. So the idea, two separate camps, but create rivalries and competition within those camps so that we can elevate the younger talent that we're that we've designated to be the kind of the next level of 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 superstars in WCW by giving them a rub with some of the established talent. You saw that with Vampiro and Sting in this episode. You know, you, you, you saw it a, a number of times. That was the approach. And it, it, to, to, to do a better job of answering your question, did I see an end that I was working backwards from? The answer to that is no. Let's talk about the announcing situation here as we get to Spring Stampede. We've got Tony Schiavone, Scott Hudson, and Mark Madden as the commentators. Tony Schiavone, of course, is the voice we all grew up on. He is really the voice of WCW. Uh, we know that, uh, his career has now got a second act with AEW. Scott Hudson is a guy that, you know, I got to work with quite a bit at, uh, some Starcast events and Mark Madden as well. And I'm a little fascinated by Mark Madden's run in wrestling because he was such a, um, I don't know. He was a shit disturber and he played a great role. I mean, he was great in his role. And I just think as a, a television antagonist, he's probably fairly underrated as far as just, you know, ha- having his finger on the pulse of, of what the, the hard, the quote unquote, hardcore fan is thinking. And I thought he did a great job. And for whatever reason, now he's not doing much of anything in wrestling. And I, th- I think that's a little curious when you watch this back, what'd you think of Mark's performance and, and what can you tell me about why he was the right guy to sort of stir the drink for WCW. Well, he was, he's a polarizing son of a bitch. There's no question about it. I used to, he used to drive me freaking nuts. And I think, okay, I remember Dusty Rhodes telling me, and I'm sure Dusty didn't come up with this, but this is where I heard it first. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Figured, okay, this, this guy's going to be mouthing off. He's going to be telling the world what he thinks. I'd rather have him under my tent and have a little bit of control of him than have no control over him. That was that was the initial reason I brought Mark in, but <laughs> I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. Um, however, I really, I, I got along with Mark right off the bat. I like Mark Madden and I think he's, you said underrated. I think he's severely underrated as a color commentator. And it doesn't mean he was perfect. He, 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 he took things too far. He, he was too cute for the sake of being too cute sometimes and, and detracted from what was going on inside of the ring. And I'll, you know, there's a couple examples I'll give you in this show, but, but they, they were minor, but they stood out to me. Right. But I, I will, you know, one of the notes I made, I got like eight pages of notes on this show. One of the notes I made was Mark Madden, John Madden. And I think Mark Madden is a heel version of John Madden to your point, you know, Mark, Mark Madden really had his, he had his finger on the pulse of what the hardcore, you know, fan was thinking and feeling. And he was an everyday guy. Mark didn't try to be something he wasn't. He's, he's still the same guy today. If you do an interview with Mark Madden today, if you sit down and have a sandwich with Mark Madden today, he's still the same guy. He's a very genuine, he's a genuine article and he's talented as hell. He's quick witted. He's smart. He's articulate. 
he's really, really talented, but he, he has that heel edge to not even an edge. He's, he's a decidedly a heel kind of a, a color commentator. He was back then, but he reminds me. And when I was listening to the show, he's like, there's a lot of, to me, at least there's a lot of parallels between Mark Madden and John Madden. John Madden is the baby face everyday man that has his finger on the pulse John Madden didn't talk over your head if you were a football fan. John Madden put things in terms that the average football fan um, could really relate to. And I think Mark Madden did the same thing in a heel version. They're very similar to me in, in some respects. Um, but I think Mark Madden is severely underrated. I'll tell you who else is underrated, and I made a note of this as well, Scott Hudson. I yep. put Scott Hudson over before, and I'm going to do it again here. Scott Hudson, I think, is the most underrated play-by-play announcer that we've had in a long time, or color commentator, because Scott Hudson could paint the picture that the producers wanted the audience to see, sometimes better than the talent themselves could. Or at the very least, almost consistently, Scott Hudson was able to augment the reality of the story that we wanted the talent to tell in a way that a play-by-play or color commentator should. He did a very, very good job. Scott Hudson is I, – I did. I, I noted this a couple of times on the show, the, the great job that, that Scott Hudson did here. You know, Tony always, Tony always did a great job, but Scott to me and Mark Madden. Um, really did a great job on this episode. I think it's a great crew as well. I'm curious though, when you were with TNA, did you ever think about doing business with Mark Madden or Scott Hudson? You, you've talked about what a fan you were of theirs here, watching him back. Did their names come up as best you recall at impact? Um, when I was at impact or TNA, um, announcers were kind of off, um, off limits for me. I, got you. I had, I had opinions. I, I would occasionally express them and I, you know, I'll give you one right here. We probably should have talked about this in the TNA episode, but, uh, I, I think it's relevant here in a way. Um, I brought in Mike Tanay. I'm, I'm the one that gave Mike Tanay his, his gig in WCW and his first real crack at na- national television. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm glad I did. And I'm proud of the fact that I did, but I brought Mark, Mark, Mike today in as a color analyst, as a walking, talking encyclopedia that could fill in the blanks in those moments during the course of a match when it was necessary. Um, Mike today could better than anybody bring detail and color and dimension to the presentation we were seeing on a screen better than anybody else that walked the face of the earth. He was excellent at that. But within TNA, they put him in play-by-play. There are two different skill sets. Just because I can dance doesn't mean I can sing right? and vice versa. And in Mike's case, he was the best dancer in the world when it came to the kind of granular, colorful but granular detail that he could bring to a story Um but man, he couldn't carry a note to save his life. He was not a good play-by-play guy. And TNA put him in that position, and it didn't suit him. He would have been so much better in color commentary. Um, but and I voiced that. I, I did bring that up. And eh, it went absolutely nowhere other than to get me heat. Well, I hope we see uh, Mark Madden do more 
uh, in the wrestling space, a Mark Madden podcast is probably going to be uh, one of the more controversial and talked about things. So maybe that'll happen, but Scott Hudson should be calling wrestling for somebody. I don't know if it's the NWA or MLW or some promotion should find a spot for Scott Hudson. I, 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 great job. I, I agree. I agree so much. Not only is he great, not only is he great. Um, but in terms, you know, if you're a producer out there, if, if Tony Khan, if you're listening or anybody that talks to Tony Khan, not that I'm trying to displace anybody at all, but if there's a role on a new show or a supplemental show or feature spots or whatever, not only is he great at what he does, but he's his, he's the professional's professional. He is unlike most people that you'll come across in the wrestling industry because he is such a pro. I can't recommend him enough. I worked with both him and Mark and, you know, they did a lot of stuff for our uh, fight broadcast and I never had to say anything. They just knew I'd say, Hey, here's what's coming up. And they knew what to do. I mean, these guys are professionals and, and that comes through here on the show because they're, everybody is working real hard to do their best to sort of make chicken salad here with this show. Let's get started. Uh, we got Ric Flair and, uh, Lex Luger as a tag team. And this is a four on two match. Can't believe that's real with the mama Luke's and Ron and Don Harris on the other side, star and a quarter flares, uh, wrestling and clothes. This is all just weird. Uh, the, 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 the way this show starts to me is just weird. what do you think watching it back? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, you know, I was kind of conflicted in a way, you know, I have my opinions of things now, which with two decades of experience and maturity and exposure to different ideas and things. You know, I don't look at things the same way I did 20 years ago. Hopefully not too many people do. Unfortunately, within this industry, some do, and we all know who they are. But time moves on, times evolve, attitudes change, audiences change, and I've changed. And I look back at this now, and I, I on, on one level – from a psychology point of view, within the context of the whole show and what we were trying to achieve, it worked because Lex and Rick walked out of there as baby faces. And the Millionaires Club, we had to we had to invest in them. We had to get them over. We couldn't just go out there and stomp mud holes in them and just completely wipe out the Millionaires Club, or there'd be absolutely nowhere to go with it. And and I think this four on two, because they were at, at such a big disadvantage, um, at least in terms of numbers, and you know the justification made. A, I mean, it was plausible. I'm not saying it was great, but it was plausible enough to pass the bullshit test. In that, you know, when Russo came out or whoever it was, I think it was Russo came out and said, "Yeah, this isn't fair." You know, these two guys have all these years of experience. we got to even the odds. Well, clearly that was a heel move, and that was Russo's role at the point. And because of the no rules, relaxed deep, which we'll talk about later on because it was a fucking mess. But um, it, it was plausible enough to make sense. But at the end of it all, on one level, it got Lex and Rick over. In that sense, I had no problem with it. But when it comes to logic... And, you know, Rick going out there in the street clothes, I'm not sure why he chose to do that or if he was directed to do that. I, I don't remember. Um, it just made it feel, I don't know, it didn't feel right to me. 
I want to say unprofessional, but that's not the right word either. It just didn't have that star quality to me that it should have had. I hate Steven Singer. And you know what else I hate? Everything that's happening in the world right now. Our heart breaks for those who have lost loved ones, those who are ill, struggling small businesses, and everyone affected by this. Normally, Steven Singer is in the love business and the happiness business. And this is the time when I would announce his new rose color for Mother's Day, but this year is different. I'm announcing his brand new I Love You 24 karat gold dipped rose. It's a beautiful pink blush color rose that will hopefully brighten your loved one's day. But Steven wants to put a little love in everyone's days. So he's using a portion of every rose sold to support local restaurants by purchasing catering for all the incredible nurses, doctors, and first responders and hospital workers. You can purchase an I Love You rose and know that you're sending love to the moms in your life while supporting local restaurants and thanking our essential workers. If you're looking to celebrate someone, simply say, I love you or honor mom on mother's day. Steven singer is shipping as fast and safely as possible. Steven treats his customers as family and is here for you. Go now to, I hate for free and touchless delivery. And also include a personalized message of love. That's I hate yeah, it's a miss for me too. Afterwards, we get a uh, an interview with Mike Awesome, and uh, Bam Bam Bigelow is going to come out, and Awesome seemingly backs down, uh, and then Bigelow turns to leave, and of course, Awesome jumps him. And then there's something kind of weird that happens here. Jimmy Hart has a match with Man Cow, the radio personality. I know he's a friend of yours. Talking about Man Cow, of course. But this just seems out of place on a pay-per-view. This feels like it should have been a dark match. Talk me through this. Well, Jimmy Hart's a friend of mine, too. Just because Mancow is doesn't mean Jimmy Hart isn't. My apologies. Just point, yeah. just, oh, no, I'm, no I'm, not, I'm not pointing that out to you. I'm pointing it out to our listeners. Um, I agree with you. It probably should have and probably could have easily been a dark match as opposed to the second match on the card. Um, and then I'm going to say, I don't think it was that bad for what it was given that Jimmy was probably what? 50 years old at the time, 50 some odd years old and not an active in ring performer. I uh, certainly been around it, you know, long enough and understood it, but from a physical point of view, not really, the right guy to go in there and do something like this. And clearly <laughs> Mankow um, was stunt casting. All that being said, I was entertained by it for what it was. Was I expecting hurricane Radas and, you know, six foot drop kicks and, you know, crazy shit happening, you know, within the ring. No, it for, for what it was supposed to be. I think it actually kind of worked. And Mankow's a crazy mofo. I, I, he sends me the weirdest texts. Every once in a while, I'll get a text from him at all hours of the day and night. And I'll look at it. I go, well, fuck, I don't have a clue what that text means. And then I'll, I'll think, maybe I'll call him back. And have you ever talked to Mankow on the phone? No. Oh, it's like sticking your head in an airplane propeller. Just bop, 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 bop. You know, it's like you'll have a 15-second conversation before you get a word in edgewise, and the conversation will be over, and he'll be on to something else. He's like super, super ADD, but incredibly talented, an amazingly intelligent, 
guy, super nice guy, big hearted guy. I saw him about a year and a half ago. I was in Chicago and, um, went and had, he owns a, he's a part owner in a really, really great restaurant in downtown Chicago. We went and had a great dinner and got caught up super guy. Now, what was the reason for this match? Why was it on tele? Why was it on pay-per-view as opposed to a dark match? Because Matt was an amazingly powerful radio personality, not just in Chicago, although he was based in Chicago, but he had a national radio audience. So given the situation that WCW was in at that time, trying to rebuild an audience, trying to attract a new uh, audience, or at least an audience that maybe we had before, but had since left us, what better way than to take a high profile radio personality who, who has the same demo that either we did or we wanted that was passionate about the business and put him in a match so that he would promote the daylights out of it on his radio show, which he did, um, and help us overall with our business. Was it something that, you know, a hardcore wrestling fan or a Dave Meltzer or a Wade Keller or Bruce Mitchell or, you know, you name them. Um, would they love this match? Absolutely not. Would they bury this match? Absolutely they would. But at the same time, you know, we're going to probably get a percentage of, of buy rates that we wouldn't have otherwise gotten without it. And we certainly wouldn't have had the local enthusiasm that we had without Mancow. So it's a little bit, you know, it's, it's using a celebrity, you know, you kind of, to a degree, you chop the ass of your hardcore wrestling fan because these guys aren't wrestlers. Um, but at the same time, you're broadening your audience and you're attracting a bigger audience as a result. And that was the, the trade-off that we made. And I don't think it was that bad of a match. I found it to be really kind of entertaining. After the match, by the way, Kidman comes out and stomps the hell out of Jimmy Hart. That's not out of nowhere, though. He's in a, a bit of a feud with Hulk Hogan. Uh, in the first round of the United States title tournament, Scott Steiner beats the wall by DQ in three minutes and 53 seconds. The wall is going to choke slam Mark Johnson. Who's our referee through a table. Billy Silverman calls for the DQ. It gets a dud rating. Uh, you guys were pretty high on the wall here in 2000. Fair to say. I wasn't Russo was. Why do I you mean, he, 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 he just didn't. Uh, you know, and he's, he's no longer with us. So I want to be careful how I say this and, and be as respectful as I can be, but be honest with our listeners. Uh, Jerry had all of the, many of the attributes. He was a, he, he was better than good in the ring. He wasn't great, but he was better than average. Um, but what he, and he had great size. Um, but he, he just didn't have the charisma. He didn't have that magic bullet that you have to have, whether you're a musician, an actor, an actress, a ballet dancer, um, or a flute player, you know, you, you've got to have that, that something that makes you stand out from everybody else. And, and, you know, Walt just didn't have that in my opinion. Fair enough. Next up, we've, uh, we've got Ernest Miller doing an interview for his upcoming match with Mike awesome, but Bigelow beats him up. And during the interview, Miller said, I was told James Brown was going to be here. I want James Brown. And of course, Mean Gene says, what? James Brown can't be your opponent. Uh, another match for the United States title tournament. Mike Awesome makes his in-ring debut for WCW with a win over Ernest Miller. Uh, even though the match started as a singles match against Bigelow. Two and a quarter stars. A lot of ECW chance here. Uh, this is a little 
weird, I guess we got Bigelow here. I guess we're trying to tell that story, but we also need to fulfill the tournament. What'd you think of the match? And, and more importantly, what'd you think of the creative to, to go this direction with it? Uh, the creative was really one dimensional. I mean, I, I, again, it kind of, kind of made sense. It's like we were talking about the Ric Flair, Lex Luger, you know, four on two situation a few minutes ago. It was plausible enough because of the way it was set up that it wasn't completely like from out of left field and made no sense at all. Um, because of, you know, Bam Bam attacking, you know, Ernest in the promo. And then the match was originally supposed to be one thing and it ended up being something else. I mean, I get it on paper, at least I kind of follow it along. Um, but the creative in the setup just really wasn't very good. It's probably a story that could have been told effectively over two or three weeks leading up to this, where you had more time and the audience could kind of, you, you could let it set in and you could add some depth and dimension to the story and the rivalry and the relationship between the three individuals. But this was just slapped together so fast. It just kind of just, it was like looking at a kaleidoscope. It's like, yeah, the colors are really pretty, but I can't pick out a picture. You know, I don't really see anything other than a lot of really color, you know, pretty colored moving pieces. Um, the match with awesome and bam, bam, I thought was pretty good. I, I didn't mind it. Didn't hate it. Let's get to, uh, to the next match here. Tag title tournament this time, Shane Douglas and buff Bagwell, uh, against Harlem heat, 2000, two minutes and 41 seconds. When Douglas pinned Ray Douglas pinned Ray with what was supposed to be a fisherman buster. This is directly from the observer. Uh, he says about halfway into the move, Douglas lost Ray, but he didn't hurt him. This was a real test for Douglas and Bagwell having to carry the worst tag team in wrestling. And it looked better than it was supposed to be on paper dud. So he's complimentary to Douglas and buff Bagwell, but Lord Harlem heat 2000, this was not the, the, the great Harlem heat from the past. Yeah. As much as it pains me to do so, I have to agree with Dave on this one. It was tough to watch. It was really tough. The whole Harlem heat 2000. And I don't know where that idea came from, whose idea it was or whatever, but the fact that they didn't put a bullet in it in, put a bullet in it pretty quickly after they debuted it, you know, as a head scratcher. Cause it, it just, it did. It was not good. Next not up good. though, we've got the old secret sauce from Harlem heat Booker T he's going to be taking on sting in the U S title tournament match. It's the first round. This is at this point, the best match on the show to me, uh, it gets three stars. Uh, I actually like this one, uh, six minutes, 34 seconds. What'd you think? I loved it. I, I thought a note I made to myself here was that to me, Sting looked probably more motivated and inspired than I had seen him in a long time. I don't know why. I don't remember having a conversation with him about it. Um, but just looking at this match 20 years after the fact, um, this was a really, really motivated Sting. And Booker, you know, I, you know we were talking about the you know Harlem Heat 2000. Stevie Ray was saddled with a lot in that. Yeah. I mean, Stevie Ray could not have made that tag team work, right? It just, you cannot do it. He couldn't do it. Nobody could have done it. Um, Borker, on the other hand here with Sting, I thought, you know, rose to the occasion and then took it for a ride. 
I thought he looked fantastic. Sting looked more motivated, inspired. I loved the match. Um, the Scorpion Deathlock, you know, finish to me really, really worked. Um, and I liked the end of it when Booker called Sting back into the ring and you had that, you know, you had that gunfighter moment. I often refer to this as something else that I've taken out of research. You know, if you watch an old Western, you know, the formula, and I'm a big fan of formulas because some of them just work no matter what, if you use them right. You know, that one moment when Booker, you know, gets Sting back into the ring and think, oh, here we go again. And he reaches out and gives him a fist bump. Okay, now you got me thinking. Now I'm thinking, okay, well, what's going to happen later on in the show? You know, they've gone from, you know, Booker T was, you know, at least presumably a new blood guy and Sting being part of the Millionaires Club. And now you've got Booker after a really tough match losing to Sting, offering that little kind of show of respect at the end opens up the door for some great storytelling or at the very least keeps you curious throughout the show. So I, I liked it. I thought this was a really well done, well executed, both from a creative point of view and a physical point of view. I thought this match was really good. Yeah. I think it's the best match on the show so far, you know, and one of the reasons maybe Sting was motivated is everybody in WCW had to respect Booker T and what he had done for the company and all the years he had spent in the tag team division and then you know, with the television title and now it's apparent, Hey, he's going to be one of our big stars. So I think Sting probably put on his working boots to help sort of pay it forward for Booker T the way Flair and many others had for him. I'm really glad you said that because sometimes in our quest to break things down and talk about them and remember them, that's a point that we often don't talk, not just you and I, but it's an, it's a point that often doesn't get discussed enough is the, the, the respect that the talent has not only for themselves and the industry that they're in, but certain talent in particular knows how important it is to get, to get your opponent over and, and do everything that you can to get that opponent over. And I think Sting, Steve Borden, probably represents as much of that quality as existed at the time I won't say as it exists today because I'm not familiar enough with the product or the people in it today to make a comparison. But I will say that, you know, Sting, and I think because he was a beneficiary of what Ric Flair did to him or did for him, I should say, not did to him, did f what Ric Flair did for Sting and, and taking Sting from relative obscurity or mediocrity to a, to a degree to launching him into the stratosphere and Sting took that responsibility on himself, and I think he gave every ounce of energy he could physically, from a creative perspective, from a psychological perspective, to helping Booker get over it. I'm really glad you brought that point up because it says a lot about certain people. And I think this match, and as, as you pointed out, says a lot about Steve Borden, the professional, and Sting, the character in the ring. Let's get to the next match. It's Vampiro working with Billy Kidman. This is for the U S title tourney, uh, it gets two and a half stars. They get a little bit of time, eight minutes and 28 seconds. You've often said before that you didn't really get Vampiro. That feels like somebody that, uh, Vince Russo would have gotten. Maybe he was going to be Vince Russo's new quote unquote undertaker with this, uh, interesting look and, and things like that. 
What'd you think of the match? Vampiro gets the win. I don't think a lot of people would have called that one. Yeah, I, I made a note to myself here too. I've never been a huge fan of Vampiro's work. I just haven't. Um, but I also haven't seen a lot of his best work. And, and I think this match may, I'm not the expert on Vampiro matches, but I think this match may represent at least some of the best of Vampiro's work. Now he was in there with Billy Kidman, which helps a great deal, but I actually enjoyed this match. Well, and what's great about it, we should mention, this is where the pay-per-view really picks up for me. Hogan shows up in his muscle car and Meltzer would say he's clearly the star of the show and he destroys Kidman to the point that Meltzer says it actually looked like child abuse. Uh, he gave him a neck hanging tree slam onto the announcer's table, which didn't break. Then he body slammed him through the table and Vampiro pinned him. It was actually an attempt at an explanation as to why there was no DQ called because Vampiro hadn't asked for Hogan to interfere. So even though on paper, it looks like, oh, well, Vampiro wins in eight minutes and 28 seconds with a pinfall. There was a huge amount of influence here from Hulk Hogan. And I actually like the creative here because, uh, you don't need to win the U S title tournament. If you're working with Hulk Hogan, brother, let's keep that storyline going. And I think fans were clearly into it. What'd you think about the Hogan piece of the match? Your analysis was right on the money, right on the money. This wasn't about Billy Kidman winning the freaking title, which nobody would have given two shits about. First of all, I didn't care about the title and Billy Kidman didn't have enough steam on him at the time for any, for anybody to care. Um, however, the angle that Billy Kidman was in with Hulk Hogan. And I think that there, if there was ever a clearer manifestation of the creative, you know, representing new blood versus the millionaires club, it was Billy Kidman and Hulk Hogan. And this match was designed to do two things, to put on a great match and be entertaining for the audience and to advance the storyline between Billy and Hulk. And on that basis alone, I, I would give it a, a an eight on a scale of one to ten because the execution in the ring was highly entertaining. It was great in and of itself as a standalone. But the way we continued the story, we weren't launching the story here. We were continuing the story with Hulk Hogan and Billy Kidman. Um, I thought elevated that story to the next level in the best way possible. Yeah, really good stuff here. Uh, afterwards, he goes after Bischoff. Uh, Russo tells Bischoff he has a plan. And just before Hogan is going to throttle him, Russo comes out with the police who would all pull guns on Hogan and he backs off. This is directly from the observer quote, Hogan sold the guns. I figured unless they had kryptonite, he was just going to stand there and have the bullets bounce off of his chest. The cops handcuff him and drag him out. Ever notice that in wrestling, the police never reads the guy his rights. So we're clearly telling the story here. Hulk Hogan is pissed at you. Uh, he even starts to come after you and, and you, uh, he, he keeps promising that he's going to eat your ass alive. Uh, don't Google that. And then you pick up the chair. This is interesting storytelling, I guess, for what it is, but it does feel more Monday night and not Sunday night, meaning television, not pay-per-view, at least for me. what do you think? Well, first of all, you know, once again, Dave Meltzer 
you know, exposes the fact that he doesn't really know what he's talking about because the police can handcuff you and take you away from a situation without having to arrest you and therefore don't need to read you your rights. So once again, if you're keeping track, just want to point that out. Number two, um, it was advancing the story. And I, it's another note I made to myself. You're, you're exactly right. This, this did feel a little bit like television versus pay-per-view. And on one hand, I think we did a pretty good job of reminding the audience who the players were and what they represented, where they fit on the, you know, within the new blood and where they fit in within the millionaires club. We kept going back. We did a lot of promos, a lot of backstage promos in between matches here. Um, but I think for the most part, they worked because they advanced story, which is what a backstage promo should do. It should move a story forward. Otherwise, there's no reason to do it. It's another bitch I have with so many promos that I see nowadays. They're promos for the sake of promos, and sometimes they're good promos, but they don't really advance anything. Right. You know, you, arguably, you could say, oh, they help get a character over. Okay, well, you're blowing yourself. If that's what you want to do, then, you know, stretch out, enjoy yourself, do it. I don't give a fuck. But don't try to justify to me how even a reasonably good promo that doesn't advance a storyline is worth the time it's taking up on television. Now, that being said, I think this actually kind of worked because, again, let's go back 20 years ago, Bischoff Hogan, Bischoff Hogan, Bischoff Hogan. You know, it, it's like, you know, I was his second marriage at the time. Um, so to have this kind of split and in this case, a physical one. I think I may have hit him in the head with a chair, split him open the week before on Nitro or something. I can't remember. I saw some clips of it, I think, on this pay-per-view. But to to create that split between Hogan and I, after Hogan and I had been kind of central to, in many respects, the NWO, kind of made sense and helped advance the longer-term story between the Millionaires Club and the New Blood. So... Yeah, it was a little bit more episodic TV and less payoff pay-per-view, but we kind of needed that. Let's uh, let's keep it moving here and talk about something that feels like a fever dream, but it's real. It's Terry Funk and Norman Smiley for the Hardcore Title. This is uh, this is great fun for me. I don't think there are two more fun performers in the year 2000 to watch than Terry Funk and Norman Smiley. Meltzer would write the match started when Smiley wouldn't come out as he was hiding in the bathroom. Funk slams him on a table and then there's upside down in a garbage can and we're climbing pipes and we're treed and there's so much silly fun stuff here. Eventually Dustin Rhodes comes out and starts delivering some punishments to Terry Funk. And we're trying to tell a story here about the famous Rhodes Funk feud for decades now going back to dusty and terry i i know that a lot of maybe critical eyes would would just eat this apart but or pick it apart rather terry funk and norman smiley i just can't be negative i enjoyed it Meltzer did too a little bit he gave it two and three quarter stars what'd you think <laughs> uh you know any look i, I don't want to be I've had a lot of coffee already this morning, so bear with me. I'm going to take a deep breath. Okay. Whew. People that would be critical of this are the people 
that I would choose to avoid at all costs. If you're a wrestling fan and you see a match that makes you laugh or that captures your interest and imagination in any way, shape or form, just because a jack off critic picks it apart because it makes them feel smarter than the average wrestling fan is no reason not to enjoy what you're watching. And I think that's as true today as it's ever been. If you're a fan of, 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 of sports entertainment and professional wrestling, if that's your thing, don't let Eric Bischoff, Conrad Thompson, Jim Cornette, Tony Schiavone, Dave Meltzer, anybody influence the way you feel about it because you're, you're not paying them for that. And they're not paying you for the privilege. So fuck them all, including me. If you like it, like it. If you don't like it, don't like it. But don't decide one way or another based on what some other jack-off is telling you you should feel like. And this match is perfect, is a perfect illustration of that. Was it a, <laughs> a Dave Meltzer five-star match? Fuck that shit. Was it one of the most entertaining things I'd probably seen in a long time? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was laughing my ass off at 6.48 in the morning. That's what I made the note. 6.48 a.m. yesterday morning. I was laughing my ass off. I woke my fucking dog up, but my dog always gets up early. It was crazy. I was laughing. When Norman Smiley, first of all, I knew he was in for a treat when, he, when, when Funk found him on the toilet. Okay. Right off the bat, I knew this was going to be interesting, or at least entertaining. And then as the match proceeded and Funk's, you know, got, got Norman Smiley down the ground and he's emptying a, a Coke, Coke cooler on him. And there's all these soft drinks falling and Norman's screaming like a banshee. He's just howling. He's screaming. And, and then it ends up in a hallway and Norman, he starts climbing. And by the way, WWE network, nine ninety nine, whatever the frick it is, just order it for this match, order it. Keep it for a month and then do whatever you're going to do. But go watch this match. It's just great. Norman's backstage. He's trying to get away. He starts crawling. There's a ladder propped up up against the wall, right? And I'm, I'm going, okay, what the fuck? He's going to grab that ladder and he's going to hit Funk with it. Uh-uh. No, not Norman Smiley. He decides to climb the ladder. And I'm thinking, where the fuck is he going to climb this ladder to? He can't get out of the hallway by climbing a ladder for crying out loud. He climbs the ladder reaches up to a, a, a drain pipe up above a big, probably about a nine or 10 inch drain pipe. And he's hanging from it, hoping that Terry Funk couldn't get a hold of him screaming like, like, like he was on fire during the process. To me, it was just so entertaining. So entertaining. If you're a fan of Terry Funk, if you're a fan of Norman Smiley, in fact, if you're not a fan of Norman Smiley, now you really have a reason to spend nine ninety nine because if you watch this, you will become a fan of Norman Norman Smiley. I thought it was just awesome. It is awesome, and I'm glad that you loved it as much as I did. There's, you know, I don't always like the same things in wrestling, but this is this is good shit, pal. Great shit. Uh, next up, we get Steiner and Mike Awesome in the U.S. Title Tournament. I got to tell you. This result also surprises me. Steiner gets the win in just three minutes and 14 seconds. Meltzer would say Steiner was rubbing Awesome's face in the mat and being particularly vicious with him. Also made a comeback until Kevin Nash came out and hit him with a crutch. Steiner wins with the Steiner recliner. You know, I, again, we're, we're, we're telling a lot of story. This is a receipt from the prior nitro and yeah, you know, who cares? Mike awesome. Doesn't need to worry about the U S title. 
he's getting, uh, he's getting work with Kevin Nash and to get the quote unquote rub, but I would have just assumed, you know, this guy being, you know, the big badass from ECW, you would have wanted to put a belt on him here, but you go a different way. And I think just like we talked about with Mike awesome or not Mike awesome, but Billy Kidman didn't need the U S title. He would much rather have an opportunity to work with Hulk Hogan. Is that sort of the same line of thinking here for awesome and Kevin Nash? Yeah. And I'll, you know, I'm again, with all due respect to, to Mike awesome, he was, he was a friend and he was a great talent, a great professional. Um, the fact that he was a big, bad, you know, superstar in ECW in the big scheme of things, it didn't really matter. Um, to bring a guy in like that, um, I don't know. It wasn't my instinct is to just, you're bringing someone new in. So let's put them over, you know, that becomes a pattern too. Right. And I, I don't know that it's necessarily good or bad. If there was a reason to look, if there's not a storyline reason to, to, in this situation, take a guy like Mike awesome. who had only been on within WCW for, you know, the length of time, length of time it takes for, you know, a cake to dry out. He'd been there for what a week. Yeah. Um, to put him over, you know, somebody like Scott Steiner without any story with at least enough of a story to get people to invest in it. And you can't do that in a week off a hot shot angle. Um, to me would have been stupid and I wouldn't do it today. I mean, I look back at some of the stuff that, you know, I was a part of and some of the stuff that I was responsible for directly responsible for, not just responsible because I was the head of the company, but responsible because it was my idea or an idea that I heavily influenced. I see a lot of that and I go, Oh fuck, what were you thinking, Eric? You know, but if faced with the same situation today, um, I, I, I wouldn't have put Mike awesome over Scott Steiner. And I know to your hardcore, you know, to the to the peripheral media and, and guys like Dave Meltzer, oh, my God, well, that just goes to show you why WCW went out of business. No, motherfucker. WCW went out of business for a lot of reasons. None of them had anything to do with the fact that we didn't put a guy from ECW, who the vast majority of our audience didn't know, over a guy like Scott Steiner, who the vast majority of the audience did know without any story to support it. I need to give you a quick heads up here. Together, we can save the restaurants we love. Every order on Grubhub helps support your local community. As restaurants rely on delivery and pickup orders during this very trying time, contactless delivery also available. Special promotions there every single day. Look for your neighborhood special so you can save some money and help save a restaurant. Your pickup or delivery order can help save a local restaurant during this difficult time. That can't be overstated. These are small businesses by and large. Tons of folks work there. We got to keep them going uh, and, and we can, you know, make life a little easier on ourselves in the process. We should also mention you can donate your change on every order to support the Grubhub Community Relief Fund, to support restaurants and the drivers all impacted by COVID-19. And just for our listeners, if you download the Grubhub app and enter the promo code 83 weeks, you're going to get $10 off your order of $15 or more for new diners. One more time. That's promo code 83 weeks. You'll get $10 off any order of $15 or more for new diners. So download that Grubhub app today. Use the promo code 83 weeks and enjoy the restaurants you love delivered. Let's talk about the next little bit that happens here on the show. Uh, this again, feels like TV and not pay-per-view, but I wonder if this is one of those moments that you sort of teased at the top of the show where you said, 
I can admit now looking back, we had leaned into the, the smart internet audience a little too much. This feels like one of those examples. Vince Russo is going to fire Dustin Rhodes for screwing up the finish. And he tells Rhodes the only good character he ever had was gold dust. And I wrote all the words for you to say. And Rhodes says, well, I was the one who had to deliver the lines. This is, I don't know. Not awesome. Self-serving. I mean, talk you talk about him. Masturbatory. Masturb- is, there, is that a word? It is masturbatory? now. Masturbatory. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, Russo was jacking himself off. Um, horrible, 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 horrible. Serve no purpose other than to get Vince Russo's ego over. Um, and I, you know, I, I'm sure I can be criticized for some of that too. So I'm, I, you know, it's not like I'm, I'm, I'm immune to, to falling prey to that myself from time to time. But in this case, there was no storyline reason to justify it. I mean, putting myself in a scene with Hulk Hogan where he wants to beat me to death with a chair and, you know, Russo brings in cops and hauls him off. That was story. That was advancing story. This was advancing Vince Russo's ego served no other purpose. And it's kind of weird too, to say on a pay-per-view, Hey, your WWF character was better than, than this one. Oh man. I just, Oh God, can we get off this subject? Cause I, my, 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 I can feel my blood, my fucking name, my, the, the veins in my <laughs> neck are starting to pulse it. Honest to God, I have a, I have a heart. I have a blood pressure machine, you know, next uh, on my desk, you know, here I ch- check my blood pressure every morning. I'm, I'm thinking about hooking it up because I might be putting myself in, in, in risk at this point. Let's just move on. Let's do. Oh, it's fuck. Oh, sting beats Vampiro. Another U S title tournament match, five minutes, 59 seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say Vampiro didn't sell well for sting. There were clearly lots of problems in this match, but the announcers were trying to sell it like it was a classic. And that's where they blow credibility is when they try to sell a classic that isn't there. And then nobody believes it. That's another example of Jim Ross being the best at this, because if a bunch of spots are missing, he may not say it's a bad match, but he won't say it's a classic either. Vampiro is missing something. Who knows what it was supposed to be because it appeared sting was totally out of position and Vampiro tried to change his idea and didn't make it sting used the scorpion death drop and death lock for the submission. So sting gets the win. Shoo. Uh, I get why you could watch this match and say you weren't a Vampiro, uh, a Vampiro fan. Look, this was chemistry. We saw a match earlier on with Vampiro and Kidman. That was awesome. Yeah. We both agreed to that. Everybody. I'm, I'm sure most people agreed with that. It was awesome. It was great. And I'm guessing that they were, you know, Kidman and Vampiro were just more comfortable with each other's styles and timing. This was a situation, I think, where Vampiro got into a match with Sting. Sting was probably not used to working with a guy like Vampiro because he didn't do it all that often. And same could be true for Vampiro and Sting. So it certainly wasn't because neither one of them were on the top of their game that particular day. I think it was just, you know, it's chemistry. And you can't force chemistry. It's either there or it's not. And I think, you know, chemistry, timing, um, all of the above just didn't work out in this particular match. But I'll tell you what did work out in it and kind of made me forget about how clunky the match itself was, um, was the double finish when um, 
Sting hit Vampiro not only with the Scorpion Death Drop, but then got the leg lock on him too, just to make sure. The crowd reaction to that was pretty intense. Got a great response. And that's another note I made to myself here. In terms of you know the talent being challenged here, they're always challenged, right? You're you're performing and for you know it's a live international pay-per-view audience. You've got eight or ten thousand people in the arena. It's kind of a big damn deal. So you you're going to feel pressure. Um but I think in this case, even though the match was clunky, the finish got a reaction that allowed the audience, both in the arena and at home, to forget about how awkward the match was because the finish was so strong. Let's get to uh, the next match. But first, we should mention that Shane Moore and Shane Helms come out to lip sync. And then we get the cruiserweight championship match. It's Chris Candido, Shannon Moore, Juventud Guerrera, the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea, Crowbar, and Lash LaRue. There's some mistimed spots in here that aren't great. Um, Daphne's doing her thing. David Flair's on the outside. Um, they also have Tammy Sitch involved. Tammy Sitch, of course, is the, the second for Chris Candido. And then after the match, after Candido wins in five minutes and 12 seconds, they try to recreate like a, an ECW television quote unquote cat fight between Paisley. Who's out here with the artist formerly known as Prince Ikea and Tammy Sidge. And I don't know. It just feels like, Hey, uh, they like this on ECW. Let's have a cat fight. It just didn't, it didn't fit. What'd you think? I hated it. I hated everything about it. Made no sense, no story, action for the sake of action, too many people in a ring, ergo, too many botched moves. Uh, made, it just made no sense. It was just like throwing a whole handful of shit up against the wall and to see what portion of it stuck. Re- really, really bad. And by the way, I, allowed, I, I distracted myself in my last rant. One of the other bigger challenges here that I made a note to myself on, going back to uh, Vampiro and Sting, is that the audience has now seen both of these guys twice. And that takes a lot of steam out of an audience, you know, and that, that happened, not just with Sting and Vampiro, but it's happened now a couple of times on this show. Um, yeah, it's really tough to, as a performer, especially if you're a seasoned performer that listens to the audience and reacts to the audience or forces the audience to react to you, depending on the situation. If you're that level of talent, which at this point, guys like Steiner, guys like Sting certainly were, um, you're walking out to a Pavlovian kind of response because the audience knows they're supposed to cheer you, but they're not that excited to see it because they've already seen you once. Uh, tournament formats are tough. Yeah. And I've, I've, I've done them. I kind of like them for me personally, if, if giant fluorescent fucking, if, and make sure that it lights up at night, if within this, within the, the framework of that tournament, there are underlying stories Yeah, and, and more than just, you know, an announcer's perception. So I think tournaments can work. And it's no different. I mean, and I'm not a huge college basketball fan. So if I say things incorrectly or whatever, um, forgive me now. But I do, you know, I do like watching 
the buildup and the recaps and all of the discussion about March Madness because it's just got such a huge energy that a lot of other sports don't have in it. Part of it is because it happens over such an elongated period of time and you've got March Madness and you've got people betting and picking and it's a big thing, you know, other than the Super Bowl, what's bigger than, you know, uh, college basketball and March Madness. Um, but if you don't have those underlying stories, then you get kind of a flat reaction to, 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 to a tournament format. And I think that's partly what we're seeing here, especially when guys, like I said, guys are coming out two or three times and you don't, there's no real story there. You're just doing it to try to get through the pay-per-view. So I just want to point that out. I'm sorry. Next up, it's a tag title match. We've got Douglas and Bagwell on one side, Flair and Luger on the other. They get a lot more time here, eight minutes and 29 seconds. Russo's going to come out to do commentary, and he's got a baseball bat. Um, and Meltzer says that I mentioned there was tons of swearing on this show. You know things are bad when, Stav- when Shivani starts swearing on air. He would also say Flair selling was good enough to keep the match decent, but when Luger worked with both guys, particularly Douglas, it was bad. The, uh, the, the underlying storyline here for a lot of fans is all the shit that Shane Douglas has talked for years about Ric Flair and in character, out of character, everywhere in between. So Madden is really trying to amp that up. Ultimately, Brian Clark and Brian items come out, destroy Luger. So Bagwell can pin him. Russo counts the fall. So Douglas and Bagwell, your new tag champs, two and a quarter stars, a lot to unpack on this one, Eric. What'd you think? I, I didn't like the match. Just my first response. I just, I didn't find it entertaining. Um, I agree with you. You know, there was this underlying kind of like. At a lower level, not at a lower level, at a different level than perhaps the heat between Ric Flair and I because of the legal situation and all of the backstory that occurred, or or Austin and and myself because I fired him by FedEx and there were years of that kind of heat that supposedly existed between us as a result of that that kind of paid itself off when I wrestled Steve Austin in, in Montreal. And I, I think now that was obviously after this, but I think there's always, uh, and let me give you another example, you know, the Dustin Rhodes, Terry Funk angle where Dustin was trying to not Dustin was trying to, but we as a creative team, we're trying to keep that legendary heat between the funks and the roads alive. There's always that tendency to, to go back to the obvious when you've got that underlying current, especially at this point in time in 2000, when we were overreacting to the peripheral media, as you and I discussed at the head of this show, which we were doing. And I did too. I mean, I was as much a part of that as anybody else. And I think it's, you you think it's going to have more value than it really does. And I think in this case, that was glaringly apparent because it just didn't matter and the match wasn't that good. So the combination of those two realities just kind of left me going, eh, it's too bad. It is too bad, but it is good that we get a United States championship match. And I got to tell you, once upon a time, Scott Steiner and Sting feels like a home run for whatever reason, this was not great. 
Uh, they get five minutes, 33 seconds. Meltzer would say these two are longtime friends and have had some great matches in the past. It was a hot match until you guessed it, a ref bump. Vampiro came from under the ring and dragged Sting down to hell, as they said. And that's the same thing they said when Undertaker did it to Kevin Nash. Sting comes up bleeding from the mouth. Apparently they wanted Sting covered in blood, but that was as far as he would go. Steiner uses the recliner for the win. Two and three quarter stars. Again, uh, I expected a different match going in. I didn't remember that Vampiro would come up through the bottom of the ring. That is something that the WWF and eventually ECW had done with some, some stunts with the ring. So I guess I can get behind it. Um, what'd you think of the creative and, and what'd you think of the match? Uh, creative left me neutral. I didn't care. I didn't hate it. Didn't love it. Didn't like it. Didn't dislike it. I was just ambivalent about it. Um, and I think part of that has to do is this was what the third time I'd seen Sting on the show. Yeah. Third, third time I'd seen Steiner. I don't care. You know, don't love me too much. <laughs> and it's just, it was too much. And again, tournament format, no story. It is what it is. I think the guys were probably less inspired by the third time out in front of that crowd. I know I would have been, I, I always hated having to go out when I was in, in WWE, I hated having to go out twice. It didn't happen often, but when it happened, I hated it, hated it. For the very reason you just, I, I'm one that needs to feed off the crowd. My performance will, I should say, my performance used to elevate based on the reaction of the crowd. And sometimes I was able to create that reaction and help nurture that reaction along. But there were occasions where I would go out and try something and it would just go, eh, and the audience wouldn't react. And it was like, you know, that dream that many people have had when you are a kid and you dream that you showed up at school and forgot to put your pants on. It's that awkward, awkward, awkward feeling. And um, I don't know if these guys were feeling that or if it's just because there was no story or if it's because the audience had seen him each three times or a combination of all of the above. It just didn't resonate with me. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess. I understand that, uh, you know, they think Vampiro has some, some big plans with Sting. And I mean, we're definitely seeing sort of, I guess that's the good thing from this pay-per-view. We have started to chart the course for the future. Like we know where the issues are tomorrow night on nitro Steiner, your new U S champion. And that gets us to the finals of the world title tournament. It's Jeff Jarrett versus diamond Dallas page. As a reminder on the way here, DDP would pin Luger sting would beat Sid by count out. DDP would beat Sting, Jeff Jarrett would beat Kurt Henning, and here we are. Tons of time here, 15 minutes and two seconds, and my goodness is Mark Madden all over DDP here. Uh, 15 minutes and two seconds, three and a half stars. Uh, interesting finish, I suppose, Meltzer would write. Finish saw Bischoff distract Charles Robinson, who took a bump halfway through the match to tease a near fall after a belt shot by Jarrett. And Kimberly got in the ring, holding the chair, holding the guitar. So now instead of Jeff Jarrett having the guitar that he's going to hit DDP with now, DDP's wife has the guitar. And of course, Swerve bro, she nails DDP. And there's a famous shot of you sort of lean. It's become a, a wrestling gif. That's now legendary where you're leaned over the ropes on the apron. And you look to the camera to your immediate left and just 
say the word wow that has now become twitter famous and then all the champs come to the ring and celebrate with russo and bischoff to end the show three and a half stars what'd you think of the match and, and what did you think of the swerve at the end and the creative I just want to go back to your uh, previous question about the Sting Steiner match and my reaction to the creative. I talked about the performance, but I forgot to button it up with the creative with regard to, you know, Vampiro being under the ring and all that. Um, I hated that again. Just I, I know that, you know, Russo was high on Vampiro. A lot of people were, by the way, not just Vince. Um, and I think a lot of that was due to, the, you know, some of the fantastic work that he had down in Mexico and all that. And he was a very capable guy athletically. But the guy couldn't cut a promo to save his life. And without that ability to cut a promo, without that ability to take your character to the next level and entertain people and captivate the audience with your ability to to talk on a mic and, and to take your character to the next level, you're just a good performer. And the idea of you know ripping off a WWE kind of format and hiding out of the ring because of its association with The Undertaker, I think reflected more um, <clears throat> of a lack of creativity than, than anything else. You know, monkey see monkey do is great if it fucking works, but monkey see monkey look like an asshole. Not so much. And this was monkey see monkey look like an asshole. Moving on to Jeff Jarrett, DDP. I'll tell you what I do like about this. Um, if you go back to the beginning of the show, there was a little bit of a, uh, there was an interview with Gene Okerlund and Kimberly and DDP. And I think at the end of the interview, I'll have to go back and watch it again. But if you do watch this on WWE Network, pay close attention because DDP does a great job promising Kimberly, you know, by the time this is all over, I'm going to let you take a shot at this son of a bitch or something. I'm paraphrasing, but something along those lines. Well, and that's exactly what played out in this match. Only instead of it being Jeff Jarrett, it was Kimberly on DDP because she'd had enough of his shit. I kind of liked that. That was cohesive storytelling. It was a nice setup with a little bit of a diversion and a swerve. Kind of liked it. The match I thought was great. I think both Jeff Jarrett and DDP worked their asses off. I think it could have been a little shorter, um, but I understand why it wasn't. At least there was a story associated with this. Yes, it was part of the tournament, but there was story too. So it, it, it was pretty effective. Um, I thought Jeff looked as good as he's looked in WCW at this point. Uh, Paige was pretty much at the top of his game uh, as a performer. And I think the story with Kimberly and her getting sick of DDP and waffling Paige with the, with, with, the, uh, with the guitar at the end of it and my reaction to it and the new blood coming into the ring to celebrate. Overall, I think it checked many of the boxes that this pay-per-view was supposed to check, certainly not all of them. And there were some real, you know, there were some dog bones in here. I'm not going to, not going to deny it, but overall, given the context, the goal, specifically the goal and the, and the, the, the timing and the situation we were in, I thought it was pretty good. I know you warned me. You said, Oh, we're going to do Springsman Stampede 2000. You better strap in. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, was it that fucking bad? You always scare me when you do that shit. I was like, <laughs> I break into a fucking sweat. You know, I got to go use extra deodorant. My mouth gets dry. My left eye starts fucking twitching like it used to when I was a kid when my dad would yell at me. All kinds of bad shit starts to happen to me when you give me those ominous kind of cues that, Oh man, you better strap in. Better be ready for this. But after watching it, I was kind of like, Yeah. You know, I've I've been less proud of more things than this, so it's not that bad. The readers of the Wrestling Observer agree with you. 
It got 59.1% thumbs up, 23.4% thumbs down, 17.5% thumbs in the middle. Uh, the best match poll was uh, Jeff Jarrett and DDP. I would go a little different on that. I like Sting and Booker T. I understand it didn't have the, the same consequence that the other match did where you're crowning a new world champion, but I like Sting and Booker T. The worst match, though, almost unanimous, Jimmy Hart and Man Cow. Any surprises there? No. No. And look, Jimmy Hart, Mankow wasn't a match, right? It was a stunt. So if you're going to grade it like a match, then that reflects your ignorance, not the quality of the product that was put into the, not everything that goes into a pay-per-view is designed to meet the criteria of the peripheral wrestling media. Some of it is designed to entertain and some of it occasionally is designed to help drive pay-per-views and ticket sales. Can you believe that? Conrad, are we, are we shedding light on a piece of the business that up until this point sometimes is, if not completely misunderstood, but forgotten that actually at some point during the course of a two and a half hour pay-per-view, maybe three hours, you're actually going to spend six or eight minutes entertaining the audience with something that isn't supposed to get five fucking stars. Is that possible? We have unearthed something magical right here on this episode. Sometimes it's okay to do something just because it's fun and it helps promotes the show. The next nitro or the nitro the next night, uh, is head to head with Linda McMahon, making the announcement of the return of Steve Austin. Of course, he's been on the shelf, but she's going to announce that he's coming back. That episode of Raw gets a 6.75 rating and a 10.3 share. Nitro, meanwhile, has its lowest rating since the earliest days of the program with a 2.47 and a 3.7 share. And Meltzer would be sure to point out the lowest Kevin Sullivan book show was a 2.51. So the worst quote unquote Kevin Sullivan book show was better than the performance the next night, but. It's a different WCW. You know, we're trying to get the audience back. And no, 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 no. I mean, that's part, that's part of it, Conrad. I don't mean, I'm, I apologize for interrupting you. I try really hard not to do that. It's disrespectful, but let's, let, let's, liars use numbers and numbers can lie. And in, in the case of, of Dave Meltzer's, you know, response about the lowest rated Kevin Sullivan show did higher than the, Okay, how about the return of fucking Steve Austin on Monday night? Do you think that had anything to do with it, dipshit? Yes. yes. Come on. Don't give me that Dave Meltzer. Not you, Conrad, but you know Dave Meltzer, don't give me your stupid shit, your little shot, your little need to dig because you're such a cunt. It's really because the return of Steve Austin had a lot more to do with it than the booking of this particular show. So go fuck yourself, Dave. Okay. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we asked you, Hey, do you guys have a question about uh spring stampede 2000 drop it here? And if you've got a question for next week's show, follow us on Twitter. It's at 83 weeks. And I know what you're thinking. Well, Hey, what is next week? We're going to revisit David Arquette and WCW. Oh God almighty. Now that is going to be something I got to strap in for. Oh, and stay tuned. Uh, we've got a little Patreon bonus for you coming up before the end of the month. It's AWA super clash Four. 
this is like the last big hurrah for, for you and a, and AWA, right? I can't wait to do that. I don't know. When are we going to record <laughs> that? Conrad? Whenever this week you'd like. Fuck. I'll do, I'll do that tomorrow. Whatever you, I'm whatever you want. Your schedule's busier than mine. That's going to be a fun one to do. That's really, there was, I can't wait to talk about that show. There were so many things I had not seen before, talent I had never worked with before. I was exposed to people from all over the country that just really wasn't on my radar living in Minneapolis and working to, to the AW. I was like a freaking kid in a candy store. And I'll give you just a brief glimpse. I don't remember. What year was that? Do you remember? 1990. 1990. In 1990, Garrett was five and a half years old. Montana was four. And my job was to build the sets and travel around the country and help promote this event, literally living in the back of a fucking van, traveling all over the place. I met Minnesota fats in Nashville. Wow. I just had so, I mean this, that whole era, that whole event and, and all the things that went along with it to me was one of the most fun, pure fun, not for my ego, not because I achieved success, not because of anything, just pure fun of anything I've ever done in the wrestling business. So I can't wait to do that. The main event of that show, by the way, is the trooper who we, a lot of us know as the Patriot tagging with Paul diamond to take on the destruction crew, Mike Enos and, uh, Wayne bloom. We've also got Larry Zabisco and Mr. Saito for the world title, John Nord and Coquino Maximus. And I don't think a lot of our younger listeners may even remember who that is. It was a, a fellow by the name of Yoko Zuna. Uh, we've also got Tully Blanchard and Tommy jammer. Uh, Baron Von Raschke and Colonel De Beers, the Texas Hangman and Brad Riggins and, and DJ Peterson. It's an interesting show that I've never seen. Uh, and this is really at an interesting time in wrestling because the AWA is uh, limping along here. Just a, a week prior to this, we would have seen WrestleMania six with Hulk Hogan and the ultimate warrior. And a couple of months after this, we're going to see sting and Ric Flair at the great American bash. And here's the third organization at the time pre ECW. It was the dying days of AWA that's coming up at adfreeshows.com. It will be your bonus show dropping later this week at adfreeshows.com. But next week it's all about David Arquette in WCW. And if you've got a question about that, just follow us on Twitter at 83 weeks, Eric, let's get to some spring stampede questions from Twitter. Are you ready? I'm ready, buddy. Bad money. Slim writes in sting and Vampiro went together like pickles and peanut butter. Was it just because there were two dark gimmicks or they just didn't gel? I ask this because everyone in the world seems to think the undertaker and sting would be great. Dot, dot, dot. Well, I think the undertaker and sting would have been great depending on timing and could possibly still be great depending on, I don't know, maybe another boneyard match. Just saying, just saying slim. Um, but there was a, you know, we, we touched on it during the show slim. I just think it was a, it was a chemistry issue and style issue. Um, I guess on paper, if you didn't really know anything about the industry and you were just kind of operating on the basis of the visuals involved, you might suggest that maybe there's something there, I guess, but man, the chemistry just wasn't there. And again, not to, not to beat up on Vampiro cause I have respect for him, but you know, if, if you can't talk, you can't draw money. 
It's just that simple in my opinion. Other people may have other opinions. But in my opinion, if you can't talk, you can't draw. And Vampiro couldn't talk. Justin wants to know in the main event, did it feel like you were distracting the ref for an eternity? Yes, I was thinking. <laughs> who, who's, whose question was that? Justin Kearns. Justin, thank you for that, man. It's funny you say that because as I'm watching this, you know, yesterday getting ready to, to, to prepare for this episode, when, I'm, when I say getting ready, you know, or preparing for this episode, what I'm really trying to do is jog my memory because it's like two decades ago. But I'm thinking, because I forgot the finish of this, this particular match. I forgot why I was distracted in the ref. And I thought I was distracted in the ref so Kimberly could hit Paige with, or could hit Jeff Jarrett with a guitar. I'm going, motherfucker, how long is this going to take? I'm watching myself distracting Charles Robinson. And first of all, I used to really like Charles. Like I did really like him a lot as a pro, as a friend. I've known him for almost ever now. But what really pissed me off watching this back is his hair was actually slightly better than mine. (laughs) That. That pisses me off. And I thought, well, maybe I'm holding on to him, you know, because I don't want him out there in the middle of the ring because I don't want to be, I don't want his hair to get any more camera time than it already has because I'll lose my throne as having the best hair in the business. But I'm going on and on, I'm just holding him and holding him and holding him. And it wasn't until I actually saw the finish I went, oh, okay. But it, it was one of those things, all kidding aside, that it was so long that it started to become a distraction from what was going on in the, in the match. I think if that whole finish, if that portion of the finish where I was distracting Robinson could have been 45 seconds shorter, it would have been much more effective. It just, you know, you loved me too much. It just went on too long. I, it got to the point where it's no longer fun to watch and yeah, it paid off, but I think it would have paid off better. Um, had the timing been different. Good question. Phil Snowden wants to know, was it more difficult promoting a pay-per-view without a publicly known main event? Uh, they, I mean, yes. Yeah. And another great question. You know, we do have Conrad, we haven't talked about this for a long time now on this show, but I think we do have the most sophisticated and intelligent audience of any podcast on the planet. Because we get into the nuance, the details, the business of the business. What makes it really work as opposed to talking about somebody taking a shit on a bus? This is where the real business of the business happens. And I think as a result, we end up getting with these really, really intelligent questions from – you know, an advanced level of of wrestling fan. And I appreciate each and every one of you. Um, Yeah, it was. But that, you know, goes to what we were talking about earlier, the challenge that you have with a tournament format. If if your payoff in your main event is the finals to a pay-per-view and you're not really sure who's in it, uh, yeah, it, it can, it can, it can pose a challenge. Let's, uh, let's get to another question here. And we do have some really good questions that are, that are on the show. Uh, but this one, I think is one that we really just sort of glossed over. Uh, the Rosen coaster writes in, was there any pushback from Turner execs for the adult language on the show? I remember Shivani yelling bullshit and Hogan and Russo using a fair amount of four letter words and promos. It's a bit of a departure for WCW. Did you guys have a discussion about it or were there separate rules for pay-per-view? Of course. No, again, very, very smart question from another highly educated member of the 83 weeks listening audience. Uh, no, again, 
go in, in the way back machine, as you like to say, Conrad, we go back and we had this new kind of uh, paradigm with regard to Time Warner and standards and practices and what we could do and what we couldn't do. And then, you know, on the other channel, you've got WWE, you know, doing all kinds of over the top, explicit adult oriented entertainment while Turner Broadcasting was kind of asking us to be uh, family friendly, if you will. Well, the one area, the one opportunity we had to still kind of scratch the itch of the older, you know, mature male audience, 18, 34, 18 to 39 year old audience, which was being very responsive to what we started in the NWO and where WWE took to the next level in terms of their adult theme content. Um, the one opportunity we had that we could still kind of do whatever we wanted to was on the pay-per-view because it wasn't a Turner Broadcasting. It wasn't on the Turner Network. It wasn't on TNT. It wasn't on TBS. Therefore, it had its own set of rules. And we talked about this earlier on in the show. Um, we overcompensated. And I think that's what um, the, 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 the listener was, was asking about. You know, there's a lot of swearing on there. Was there a different set of rules? And the answer to that is yes. There were a different set of rules. Pay-per-view, we could, for the most part, do whatever we wanted to do. Uh, within reason, whereas on TV we had to kind of operate it, it, under a different set of rules. Another fun question here, uh, and this one we've maybe touched on a little bit before, but not spent a lot of time. And I know why it comes up here. Colby Reed writes The Chris and Sonny relationship has been widely documented as being, well, dysfunctional. Had any of the rumors about their backstage issues reached WCW before they came on board? Was that a concern? Or did you even know? You know, I, I was generally aware of issues with a lot of talent, but when it's rumor and innuendo and there's nothing documented, yeah, should I have paid closer attention? Should I have been a little bit more demanding? Yeah. Should have been a little bit more careful. Yes, I probably should have been in retrospect. Keep in mind, I didn't hire either one of them. Um, I was I was coming in after you know Tammy had already been there. I believe could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. Um, but whether or not I, I hired them or not, um, if I would have listened, if, if I would have based all of my hiring decisions on the rumor and rumor and innuendo and chatter that that you know, in, was surrounded almost all of the talent, nobody would have got hired. Nobody would have got hired. If Shawn Michaels would have been available, I wouldn't have hired him based on what I had heard about him. You know, if I were going to use that, that kind of um, litmus test, if you will. So I would say definitive answer. Yes, I was probably aware of a lot of the chatter, did I, would I have let it affect my hiring decision? Probably not. I usually judged people based on what they did, not on what I heard. Uh, Scott air wants to know, why do you think the millionaires club didn't last much longer? Oh, there's a lot of reasons for it. You know, I think the dysfunction between Russo and myself, um, started to manifest not long after this. And once the chemistry breaks down, once the trust breaks down, for me, that's, you know, for me, trust is 90% of 
80% of chemistry. You know, I mean, if I, if I don't trust the person that I'm working with, then no matter what other attributes they may have, it just doesn't fucking matter. It's going to start falling apart pretty quickly. And that became apparent to me, started becoming apparent to me with regard to Russo, not long after this. And look, once the chemistry breaks down, nothing good is going to happen. I think that was part of it. I think the general lack of direction and support from Turner Broadcasting was a part of it. I think the fact that I was remote, that I wasn't, you know, I was only kind of involved in the creative and not allowing myself to become more involved in in other aspects of the company that was actually part of creative um, probably hurt a little bit. But I, I don't think there's any one answer. I think there's probably five or six different ones. One last question, and then we'll wrap this one up. Ray writes in, do you think Daphne, Daphne doesn't get the respect she fully deserves? She had one of the more unique personalities in wrestling history. Uh, this is going to be an unpopular answer, but I, I just always give you my visceral response to them. And, and, and no, I don't th- I think she got more exposure than she probably deserved. Um, although she did, you know, she did have a nice, uh, what do they call it? A Screamensteiner or whatever her move was a Franken kind of a, her version of a Frankensteiner. I can't right. remember what she called it. Um, which was pretty impressive by the way, very impressive. So props to her for that. But as a character, uh, I think she saw more TV time than she really deserved. Well, that's not the answer I expected, but that's why we do these shows. And if you've got a question about next week, man, we're going to have fun. It's David Arquette and WCW. We've been uh, teasing this one and danced around it for a long time, but it's finally happening. And right around the anniversary, I'm excited to cover it as that storyline comes up on its 20 year anniversary. And don't forget AWA super clash four coming your way at adfreeshows.com. real quick. I want to run down some of the things we're going to be covering in the month of May. Uh, just to get you guys a good bit of a glimpse of what's coming. We're going to watch the Monday night debut of impact when they decided to go head to head with Monday night raw. We're doing that on May 4th on May 11th. We'll have TNA sacrifice 2010. We got lots of great feedback about us talking about some TNA episodes. So we'll overdose in the first couple of weeks of May. Then we'll switch things up on May 18th. We're going to do hashtag ask Eric anything and give you guys an opportunity to pick his brain about everything going on then now and forever. And then we'll wrap up the month of may with a pretty interesting show. And I haven't ran this past you yet, but Eric, I want us to watch AEW double or nothing. Their very first show. That'll be right around the one year anniversary. Of course, we were both there or at least in town. I don't think you actually went to the show at MGM grand garden, but running an old WCW building. And it's, it's the first show from this new company. It was uh, it was a pretty momentous time to be a wrestling fan and to be at that show. And I don't think to this day you've seen it. Uh, I know you maybe had seen some of the the Cody Dustin match, but I don't think you've seen the whole card, right? I have not. I've dropped it. You know, Cody Dustin match I definitely watch because you know I'm, I'm friends with both of them, but um, I haven't haven't seen a lot of the rest of the show clips beats. So I'm really looking forward to breaking it down. Really looking for that's another one that um, th- that'll be fun. That'll be a fun show to break down. Yeah, the month of May is going to be different, man. Two uh, TNA episodes, an AEW episode, and an Ask Eric Anything. 
June, we're back to business though. Tons and tons and tons of nitro and great American bashes and clashes, but the fun is going to keep coming. Join us on adfreeshows.com if you haven't already. And Eric, this past week, we should mention, uh, you had some special content where you broke down maybe the most controversial match of the year, the Firefly Funhouse match from WrestleMania. And you didn't just do it by yourself. You're a, a real storytelling expert on the phone with you. A gentleman by the name of Tom DeShane. Tom is a, he's an expert on Shakespeare, believe it or not. He actually wrote a book, a critically acclaimed book called uh, Shakespeare's Parapolyptic Characters and um, really, really high, highly regarded individual, really understands sto- classical storytelling. And he happens to be a wrestling fan. So we were able to have a conversation on adfreeshows.com where we took the, the entire Firefly Funhouse match between Cena and Fiend Bray Wyatt, and we broke it down, the elements of that match, the story that that happened within the body and the framework of that match. I'm calling it a match, but you know, you all know what I mean. Uh, but we break it down based on the elements and structure of classical storytelling. And you know, there was one point, you know, during the interview that I did with Tom where he actually made reference in a comparison between Alice in Wonderland and the Firefly Funhouse match with John Cena. So if you if you if you're like me and you're a fan of storytelling and and, and I don't get me wrong, I love the physicality, I love the athleticism. I certainly am a big supporter and proponent of the fact that the business evolves and it changes as the audience evolves and changes with it, but I also believe that at its core you have to have great story. And if you dig even below that, if you really want to get down into the, 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 the roots of what makes things work and doesn't make things work, I think the storytelling and the structure of that storytelling is an absolute priority if you want to exist in the long, long term. Once people get tired of seeing you do all the crazy athletic stuff, they get tired of it and they move on. But if you're doing all the crazy athletic stuff and, oh, my God, there's a great story to support it, now you're you're making money for a generation or two into the future. And Tom has that ability as a long time. He'll, you'll hear it in this interview, how he grew up watching wrestling. And he'll also tell you how his exposure to wrestling and the impact that it had on him catapulted him and, and motivated him to get in. To, oh, by the way, he's got a master's degree from Harvard. Okay. But he will tell you how being a wrestling fan inspired him to pursue his career and go on to get a master's degree at Harvard because of professional wrestling. So it's a great, great interview. You know, whether you're a fan of the, the, the Firefly Funhouse or not, doesn't really matter if you're a fan of sports entertainment and professional wrestling and you really want to begin to understand story because we all talk about it, but very few people can break it down and, and illustrate how it all fits together and how it all should work when it's done right. So great. It, it's worth, you know, I think it was an hour interview. It's certainly worth an hour of your time. And of course, a couple of weekends ago, we let uh, some of our top tier guys sort of pick your brain on a video chat. And I'm sure we've got more of those coming your way. If you haven't already, check out all the fun we're having over at adfreeshows.com. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button here, leave us a review, and tell a friend 
next week. It's finally happening. David Arquette in WCW right here on 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.